Hey folks, welcome to episode 150 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Peter Dorish and Brian Birdo. They've set many first descents in the mountains of the Cascades in Washington State. Pete is known for obscure and big wall first descents along with some epic adventures that'll leave your heart leaping for comfort. In this episode, we talk about... Um, some of his wild adventures from uh, an 11-day aid climb without any sleep to trying to row to Hawaii and getting turned around. His passion evolved from climbing and first ascents to long adventures on high routes in the Cascade Mountains. His friend Brian Bordeaux has set one of the longest bolted sport routes in the United States, totaling 1,800 feet of pitches no harder than 5.9. I had Brian on as a guest in a previous episode of the podcast where we got to talk about his um, passion for rock climbing and its relationship with his passion for running and how that's evolved throughout um, the years. It was amazing to be able to listen to such a prolific route setter's background, but in this episode, getting to see his friendship with Pete and getting to learn more about Pete was really exciting. Pete and Brian have a deep friendship and a long history of adventures. And despite their passions no longer intersecting, they're close friends with ever-growing bonds. And you can really see that in this conversation. I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Here's Brian and Pete. Wide and they excelled at many different sports and they were just outdoorsmen and they just were really good climbers, really good kayakers. And I tried to do that and I, and I wasn't like that, you know, and I knew that I had this pick something and just do one and go deep rather than go wide like mm-hmm. my compatriots. So I, so somehow it was probably, I was like 33 or 34 when I kind of finally figured out like climbing would be the best thing for me just as for my temperament and my, you know, sort of intimidation by hydro, wet water hydraulics and mm-hmm. surfing and skiing avalanche seemed dangerous and alpine climbing didn't seem right. So finally it was more like rock climbing in, in the backcountry. Brian and I kind of met each other as an approach to climbing that fit our temperaments and our sort of perspective of what would be meaningful and, and what we could focus on. But it didn't come to me right away. I mean, I was like in my mid-30s practically when I figured that out. So I kind of wasted, I feel like I wasted all my 20s farting around. <laughs> this brings up a parallel. So there's almost a fatalistic parallel with me and Pete. We're like, in, in many ways, we're completely opposite, like how we do things. But uh, for one thing, we both grew up in the same town. Was wow, it, but, really? but roughly, uh, what, six years uh, six years apart, something like that. And um, Pete got into climbing, technically speaking, m- earlier than I did. So 
his first climbing was 67 or 66. That's a really long time ago. And, wow. and I didn't, you know, I didn't get onto a rope at all until like 75, maybe 76. And I didn't do much technical stuff till a little after. But anyway, so I'm kind of like in this lagging thing. But then what Pete was saying about trying all his sports through mm -hmm. my 20s, um, my original sport had been running. So I'd run marathons and stuff. And then my knees went bad when I was like 21, 22. And I started just looking at, you know, going wide and trying to try in all the different sports and seeing what felt good or whatever. And I had kind of actually settled on telemark skiing because I got started getting popular at that yeah. time. And actually, uh, Steve Barnett, who actually lived at this house Whoa. when he wrote, probably when he wrote the book, he wrote a book on uh, downhill uh, cross-country skiing. And I read that book and I got super jazzed and I bought the gear and I actually bought my first boots from him. Wow. So there's all these close parallels where, I, in fact, when I when I bought the boots from Steve, I wonder if I came here to buy them. I, I might have. Oh, wow. See, because there's all these things where I hadn't met Pete. Yeah. And he kept like coming this close to meeting. And then, um, so I, I was doing all that. And again, I didn't get into technical client. I didn't reach the same conclusion as Pete till like into my 30s, well into my 30s. And then, uh, so again, a late bloomer, late start. But my thing was I got into climbing through the UW Climbing Rock. And I'd hang out there with the guys there that were training on that. So when you were getting into it, there was some form of culture there. Starting. It was a very small, that was the one spot where you can kind of meet a, meet climbers. Whereas with Pete, he kind of like scraped his own guy crew together. Well, you had to like just we, there literally was, from scratch. Yeah, I mean, it was barely the you know. The, subculture climbers but we didn't we didn't know who they were access so we for the first two years we, we were all on our own in bellevue just the four of us just because i happened to read a book one day about climbing oh my god and then we gradually you know figured out oh we'll go to leavenworth you know people mm -hmm. there's climbing there <laughs> he's like be able to see someone doing it yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and that was like in our at the end of our second year or third year Wow, like you the were... first two years, we didn't even go to the practice areas like Index or Leavenworth for two years, because I didn't, you know, I didn't really figure it out that there were these climbing areas to go to. Oh my... So we were in the mountains <laughs> or or Snoqualmie Pass or Mount Si. We did, we were all over. You're Mount probably si. doing first ascents all the time then. Well, who knows? Wow. But, but we yeah, and then finally, I remember like in our third year of climbing, but the first year was <laughs> like a half year. So we we started in the summer. And then the following year, the whole year, we didn't go to any of the established areas mm -hmm. and still didn't meet climbers, you know, where we went. Wow. And then finally in that next year, you know, so this is basically the third calendar year, you know, but the first year is a half year. Then we started going to Leavenworth and then we just started meeting people. And then <laughs> and everybody knew everybody back then, too. And, yeah. It's and a really tight we, community. That's when we integrated into that subculture wow were, were you were you guys like intimidated as you were learning or just excited and, and stoked and curious we we probably you know were like adrenaline buzz kind of thing and mm -hmm. and, and and did you know so we were we were stoked and curious but not i don't think we were intimidated or anything uh, is that what you were kind of asking? yeah that's yeah, yeah we we were we weren't aware of what was out there and how good people were mm -hmm. And then I think in that next year, after that first year of meeting it, that's when I realized that there were people there who were really good climbers way ahead of us because we were inventing it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then I saw other people who had been at it for a while, kind of names like, like people like Al Givler, who was from Bellevue, 
So talking to him and then seeing him climb, you know, going out with them, then I realized, oh yeah, this is like a whole another level than we had. We had were figuring out at a very slow mm -hmm. level. And then when I saw other people who had been at it for a while doing it and, and realized how efficient they were, then I kind of put it together, okay. And that, that was a big sort of a quantum leap for us. Because mm -hmm. when we sort of understood, yeah, you move quickly and you don't, you know, you just sort of do it. And they were very fluid. Oh, wow. Yeah, because they had been doing it enough and mm -hmm. knew each other. They bounced off other people. We we were just bouncing off ourselves. Yeah. So we, we got a kind of a slow start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because so you had to start literally so from scratch. Culture, yeah. And then we kind of took off, you know, and caught up with it, I guess. Before that, did you guys have any like adult role models or anything who like would either show you talk about climbing or take you to like climbing places in no, your youth? No. Oh, wow. Not really. No, there was no, um, in, in my case, the difference there is, um, I, it took me a long time to actually go over to like Leavenworth and go to places where people were climbing outside, but I had to eat up a climbing rock. And so I had some guys climbing there. And some of the guys that climbed there, I think, never climbed anywhere else. They were just bouldering at the rock. And then other guys were actual going out. But as a newbie, I was kind of like low on the totem pole for sure. And so I would kind of like, and I remember I hooked up with this one kid. He was 18 and I was probably late 20s. And he was good, a good boulder at the rock. And he and he had also taken the Mountaineers uh, intermediate course. Mm -hmm. And I was too impatient to ever, ever take a class or do anything <laughs> like that. So I did. But I didn't really understand. Kind of like with Pete in his early years, I was just kind of bumbling around. And so we would I remember we went on a, a trip up to the enchantments because I'd heard there's good climbing there. And we, oh, and then the background, the backdrop, the structure, all this is the Becky guys. Mm -hmm. uh, Becky had the first series of Alpine guides. In fact, I don't, you, uh, we had the brown guide in the 70s. And then I think the green guide came out. That's for the Central Cascades came out late 70s, maybe. Was that like the first basically published work of um, climbing routes in the Cascades? No, but it was the first like detailed oh. one. Because he had actually written another. That was detailed? Well, wow. Yeah, he'd written a smaller guide back in the 50s or 60s? Yeah, in the mid 60s. Wow. And it was pretty classic. Yeah, it's it was very classic. Much more enjoyable to look at and read than, <laughs> yeah. than the other thing he did later and started. I, in the I think 70s. we have a copy here. So, uh, at some point, we should maybe have you take a look at it. It's, yeah, it's really cool. amazing. So, if, so, Fred kind of provided that kind of platform informationally. And then I remember I, I would go buy the books by Royal Robbins on uh, uh, one was. Um, uh, advanced rock craft or basic rock craft and advanced rock craft or something like that. They were very, uh, very uh, opaque in terms of trying to understand. Like he'd have some cartoon of people playing, and I'm like, okay, what's what are we doing here? You know, I just didn't really understand it. So we were kind of like with Pete, we were just kind of fumbling around. So I went up to this guy in enchantments and tried not to die, and we. <laughs> And he and that kid had never led a five eight. He'd done a five seven, but not five eight. And he just mentally couldn't handle pushing beyond that because mountaineers had drilled into him. You don't want to be above your limit. Oh. Whereas I didn't understand my limit, so I would lead the hard pitches <laughs> and just basically run it out, and, you know, not knowing how dangerous it was. 
And then, um, so that was kind of like the, that fledgling stage. And then I did hook up with my ex uh, cross country uh, high school teammate who had been climbing Yosemite head. And by that time was getting in the 511 range. So I went from like, you know, <laughs> barely, you know, looking at five eights in the mountains to like getting repeated top ropes on tens and elevens and things that were way over my head. Wow. But I learned job. by trial by fire in that circumstance. And the guy would just really critique me, <laughs> criticize <laughs> me on my, my handling gear and all this stuff. So I kind of had to learn by sink or swim with him. And then, um, yeah, so that's, that's how I kind of caught up to a point where I felt like, you know, I could competently go on a trip with somebody and not, and hold up, hold up my side of the, so that took a while, but I was stuck at five, nine for years, uh, in the late seventies into the early eighties, I think 80 or 81, I went to Yosemite and finally got into the five tens, but. Do the grades change over time too? Like the incense of like what's because I always hear like what's old school five nine, for instance. So would then you'd be like struggling with something like or staying at five nine for so long and now that's like something completely different. Not inferring that you get that time passes and the grade changes and not getting better, but I've always wondered what that like old school five nine really the, was referring the, the to. The ratings weren't weren't standardized like they are as much as they are now mm -hmm. so five nine can mean almost anything because it was kind of near the top of the, the rating scale and at least in the 60s it was but like in the becky guide uh i think the hardest alpine routes were five nine on the first guide so my whole goal was to just competently lead five nine and that i had no real ambition beyond that to ever yeah. achieve anything whereas Pete probably just by trial and error, just got in five ten by you know going to Yosemite and yeah, and of course this was before sport climbing, so mm -hmm. the standards increased, accelerated you know when sport climbing came on the scene. But before that, you were getting better by on lead basically, mm -hmm. which is a lot harder oh, to yeah. improve if you're on lead because you're more conservative mm -hmm. and you're in, in pushing your limits. So you in sport climbing, then you you can push your limits. At a quicker pace. That's my understanding, probably. From you, from like um, coming into climbing well before your sport climbing is being introduced, did it um, did it influence the way that you look at falling and like your relationship to falling? Oh, very much so, yeah. How yeah. so? Could you elaborate? You wouldn't fall, basically. Yeah. You, 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 people rarely fell on lead, and, and leading was usually how you improved. And top roping, we, we sort of started to figure out like top roping was a good way to get better. Mm -hmm. But basically, in bouldering too, I suppose, but basically it was mostly more, uh, some people called it adventure climbing. So the mm -hmm. so the emphasis was on the adventure and not improving your grade and skill level. It was mostly going out and having an adventure. And if you got better, that's, was, <laughs> you know, even better to get better, of course. But that was... Not the, the main point. The main point was to have the adventure. What do you, how do you feel about that kind of climbing? And what does that mean to you, even when that's an optional thing today with like sport climbing and doing bolted routes and stuff like that? Like you don't, you can go out there and push your limits far and not have to only, you know, go out for an adventure. Right. But I feel like back in the day, it was more like 
what was offering was more of an adventure climb. Like, I feel like you could spend like your whole, you know, experience as a climber, not having these adventurous climbs and having like, you know, sport routes and pushing all of that. Um, so then you could choose to incorporate that in your like climbing style. Is that something that you value? Um, yeah, I think if I understand your question, um, they're built up, a maybe, um, a uh, a strong, I don't know if ethos is the right word, but a strong um, culture of, of the adventure. And, and we sort of did that at the expense of improving ourselves under sport climbing and controlled conditions. And that was just sort of, you know, I don't know if it was the culture, but among us people, you know, it was sort of seen like, well, that's what you would do. It just never occurred to us to work on getting better, except for Pat Timpson. He understood it mm -hmm. and exercised and did all that, those things, but he did it leading. I mean, he would actually, he, he, wow. he was so unusual. He was so good at it and, and just constantly trained. And he improved leading hard climbs. He, he didn't sport climb wow. until way later. So he, he became one of the best. And he, he did like the second ascents of all the hardest climbs in the 70s that were put up in Yosemite. He, somebody Whoa. would put him up and Pat wasn't a great visionary, <laughs> but he would then go up and do the second ascent of the hardest climbs that were put up in Yosemite, which in the time in the seventies was like the hardest climbs in the world, probably wow. yeah, before sport climbing came around. And he, he pushed his level leading but that was just, no, it didn't occur to any of us, <laughs> to, to, you know, to, to, to do it any other way. Yeah. That's how strong that, that desire was to have an adventure. Cause it was all about the adventure. Cause you know, now I see, like I saw surfing, you know, become very technical and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But before that, it became very technical and everybody's doing it. It was all about the adventure and, and the big waves and, you know, just surviving. Yeah. And climbing was just like that too. Wow. And then when climbing became more codified and all of this stuff, it was still a big adventure. But, of course, they were at those upper limits that were beyond us, of course. Mm -hmm. But in the 70s, you know, that, that hadn't really happened yet, that culture of sport climbing and improving – your, your level to a lot of people, to a lot of us, it did to some, but not, mm -hmm. but mostly it was about the adventure. So Pete's career kind of spans from the use of pitons primarily for pro uh, into what you call clean pro, which is like uh, became nuts and chalks and hexes and then eventually cams mm -hmm. and things. And so that was the seventies. And then, uh, and then into uh, sport climbing really wasn't a thing around here anyway, till really the late eighties. Wow. So my, my career spans that more. So in other words, all of my, all of my <laughs> hardest climbs up to five, uh, hard five eleven were all done on site on granite placing gear, no falls whatsoever. So I kind of, Whoa. kind of like you were saying with Pat, I would just go and get on. I'd have to really, really get my balls together to, you know, yeah. even go up one letter grade. You know? wow. And it wasn't like sport climbing where like, oh, I'll jump on, you know, I'm, I'm, I just let a 12A. I think I'll jump on a, you know, 12D and see what happens. You know, it's, it was more like you very carefully worked your way through. And then from up to, so that's up to 11 plus. And then I became a sport climber or shifted into sport climbing. In the late 80s and early 90s 
in all of my hardest climbs in the 512 and 513 range, all been on sport climbing and all been on non-granite. Oh, wow. And that includes on sites and red points. So, and then red point is another thing too. That didn't exist back in the seventies when we were climbing. You either, you either, maybe, maybe people would say you do it, no falls or something, but it, the style wasn't quite as sorted out. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of like, you did it, you know, and it might mean you, generally speaking, it meant you didn't fall or anything, but, you know, it, it would get kind of fuzzy, like whether mm -hmm. someone rested on a piton or, you know, whatever was going on. And, and those things would probably come from, I imagine, what like controversy for first descents and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and, and simultaneously the climbing, climbing was trying to define its rules, mm -hmm. but then also expand as a sport. So there's a lot of moving parts. It's just, and it's interesting for me coming at it. Whereas, like, I could look at this kind of what you guys are saying is like climbing being, you know, uh, codified in some way. I can go and I can look at like the basic fundamentals and my ability to access that is like my son can do that, you know, in terms of researching and, and stuff like that, buying books and reading. Um, and it's just becoming easier and easier to the point to where I could almost like understand all the available routes around me and I can go on Google earth and, you know, just literally to the end of all information that I can gather. Well, if, if, if I'm nowadays, I go on a road trip to like red rocks or you send me or something, and I wanted to do like a certain route, I'll just dial it up on, uh, yeah. and on my phone, I can watch four different people do that route. Uh -huh. Yeah. Like, it's oh, like... okay. <laughs> so much for the onside. And yeah. the, the adventure thing is like, <laughs> I find that, you know, I go into running and I like to run. Um, but for me, it's, uh, I find adventure is the way that I like to run. And I took me a while to figure that out. Cause I go into a competition or like a ultra run and the course is all clearly marked. And for some reason, it's monotonous and, and hard for me. But then when it's not clearly marked or there's like a boulder field or a stream crossing, I get really excited. And it took me a long time to like suss that out. I really like route finding for rock climbing. Like if I go to Erie every day for my life, it's just um, it doesn't entirely do it for me. But then when I got exposed to like the backcountry and like alpine climbing and the sense of ambiguity there and trying to figure all of it out and coordinate it. It really hit all those buttons for me. But I realized that as we move along with more and more information, that that becomes more and more self-imposed. But I like it. And I like to be able to listen to people have those kinds of adventures and figure out how to continue to impose that on myself or my son and I, you know, like even when I go out for like a backpacking trip, sometimes it's nice to really not gather that much information at all, other than what's like essential for survival. Um, and that's interesting. Did, did you, with like that, like that adrenaline kind of like thrill seeking side of it, when you're getting into climbing, um, you mentioned something before we started the podcast about the, um, the coach taking you guys to go and do like the climbing stuff. Was it like that with the coach or were you guys like, was it like a really like controlled environment? That's really cool that there's like an adult who could be that you know influence oh he he wasn't a climber the high school coach that mm -hmm. started a climbing class in Bellevue high in the late 60s didn't know anything about climbing but knew us as students and knew that from our conversations because i would he would ask me what i was doing 
and I would tell him why I went out climbing this and that. And he just got really interested in the fact that the four of us were out there mountain climbing because it just sort of, he had no experience of that in, in, in the Bellevue suburban culture of anybody <laughs> going out and just doing that on their own. And he was intrigued. And, and I didn't understand it at the time, but I think he saw that as something positive. And, mm -hmm. and I think he saw that as, as, a, as something athletic and we were doing in a holistic way that was healthy and good. And I think he wanted to bring that to Bellevue High oh. as, a, as, a, as an alternative maybe to, 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 excuse me, Brian, for track, I'm joking, <laughs> but the regular sports. Mm -hmm. And somehow he said, oh, well, why don't we, you know, broaden the athletic program at Bellevue High oh. and include mountaineering. And I think that's my guess, what, what was going on. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it at the time. I just thought, <laughs> oh, okay. And then we were kind of setting the agenda and, and leading these trips, and 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 luckily nobody got killed. <laughs> I was going to say he, the guy probably had no clue. Yeah, how no clue. dangerous it yeah. was. Oh, dangerous yeah. because there were a few close calls. Oh really? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. People slipping on snow and sliding down and all this <laughs> stuff. And we were, you know, showing up because we had taken the Mountaineers course that um, previous year at the Mountaineers. Mm -hmm. You know, in 68. So in 69, when we had this Bellevue High, we had all knew the basics from the Mountaineers course, and he knew that we had taken it. So he figured we were competent. But of course, that was nothing further than the truth. We didn't still know what we were doing. But, you know, we pretended like we did. And yeah, it was a miracle that nobody got hurt. But it was very, I mean, we were like, all of a sudden, you know, Shy-looking, nerdy people, my friends and I, were very, all of a sudden, we were like part of the, not the, exactly the clique, but we were yeah. sort of accepted by mm -hmm. Bellevue High School society. Wow, in yeah. In a way that we would never have been, never in a million years. That's so cool. it wasn't for that. Wow, and you have like, you get that sense of community and like something where you can identify with other people with, you know, especially oh, being so, an outsider. Oh, yeah, and I was so shy, and then I would actually go on dates with girls that I just barely knew. And we'd go out for three-day trips. And then I would come, you know, for a weekend. You know, we'd leave Friday. And I barely knew these girls. And, and I'm like 17 and 18. And I'd come back and we'd do some, like, mountaineering traverse over mountains, you know, Hill and Dale with somebody and, just, you know, spend the night together. And, and we're 17 or 18. And then I'd come back and then I'd hear from the girlfriend of the girl, girl I went out with and did this, this trip. Said, oh, yeah, like, Susie had a great time. She was only in fear of her life, like... 50% of the time. That was a very common <laughs> uh, feedback I got. Like, oh, yeah, so-and-so is only a fear of her life, you know, like 50% of the, of the time on the, on your trip. So. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like you really started opening up when you're when you're getting into the climbing, too. I, I, I didn't know who I was. I, I couldn't even, you know, I had no no sense of purpose or anything. My life was just totally um, unfocused and drifting. Did and, th that and ever worry you or concern you? I, I just was just like so many other people. You, you just sort of went along with, with whatever <laughs> was the easiest path. And and then somehow climbing pulled me out of that. And, you know, but I didn't understand then to apply it to the rest of my life. So, so I, I could focus and do something like climbing, but, and then, uh, Years and years later, I figured out to apply myself to other aspects of life. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I didn't understand that. Yeah. 
It's uh, the thing that I like about those is that you're like when those scenarios, you weren't there to understand that, right? You're there because you're having fun. And yeah. And also a lack of, like, I never had a, I had a very distant father, so I had no mentor. Nobody under, explained to me, you know, what, how to live a life. Mm-hmm. I had to, totally figured out on my own. I was like the eldest. So I didn't have any siblings to look up to. My parents are very detached and free range, you know, benign negligence. Mm-hmm. So all of this stuff, you know, I had to figure out myself or glean it off other people. Wow. So, so, so I'm surprised that I found something to do that because a lot of my friends never really did, you know, Mm -hmm. they just sort of never found that kind of. And you did it in a way that, that you're able to like mitigate and get to the other side and learn from it. Right. Cause then, cause you, you even say it yourself, like, Oh, I'm surprised we didn't get killed. Like, (laughs) and there was no role model for, you know, as a, as an adult or just as like a person going through all this, you're figuring it all out on your own. Oh yeah. You know, and my friends, especially patch, he thought that we thought we wouldn't live like to make it to the next year. That, that was our mentality because oh, we understood really? it was pretty dangerous. We didn't know what we were going to, we were really doing, but we were doing anyway, taking chances. <laughs> and I remember like I subscribed to a, a magazine for two years and Pat said, you know, what a waste of money. You're going to be dead in two years. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was, that was so... our understanding. And I believed it. We both, we all believed really? that. Um, well, all the best climbers in Washington were dying. And, oh yeah. And and they were, oh, and that was, like... and they were doing that because it was dangerous. Yeah, Jim, <laughs> Jim Madsen was the best uh, rock climber in the sixties yeah. and he died on Yosemite. Whoa. Yeah. And oh, then, oh, exactly. And then Paul Boving died at index on 10 fingers. And he, he was one of the top. So, and when I got into climbing, I became aware of that, that, oh, here's a sport where the best guy in Washington just died a year before I started climbing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be really conservative with this. And I was well into my 20s. So I was good. So Pete had this little jump start of being a teenager. I counted 18 <laughs> of my climbing partners and a few of them were really good friends died. Oh, and, and, and their mentality was the same as mine was, well, you just go up and do it and you know, you know, your, your chances were in your favor, but mm-hmm. they weren't, you know, they were pretty good, but not, not anywhere near as safe as it is today. Yeah. 18 of my, yeah. And they, they were just oh. dying, like dropping like flies in the seventies and late sixties. Wow. And then we yeah. just understood that was just, you know. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask about, about that, about that, because sometimes I have these um, like uh, interactions with people that I don't know in the climbing community and other places in general. And like a lot of it's like default um, things that are like dangerous or foolish, right? Or they you'd perceive or foolish or threaten your life. Often like um, people would be perceived in like a negative viewpoint, right? But how I like, even I think about that with like avalanche risk a lot too. It's um, a lot of it's like fear mongering over the avalanche risk because they want people to be safe and you want to lower the death count. But I also think of like another way where, you know, life is something to be celebrated and life is finite and how you choose to spend that time is like at your discretion. And it's very interesting how people choose to spend it. And I find that like doing things where you have like this, this risky scenario, right? It, it makes you feel alive. But I also think it's like a value. It's a valuing of your life in that way, because you're willing to put yourself in these situations for this experience, knowing full and well what could happen. And you do everything in your own power to mitigate for that. And I think having all of that onus on your shoulders 
of being able to keep yourself safe or help your party be safe is an experience that I think is very valuable. And I don't think you get that without the risk of death. And I don't, sometimes I feel yeah, my wrong. It's also a matter of cognizance too. So, so in Pete's case, when he's learning as a teenager, because this dovetails to another story about in college when he goes on another adventure, but it's not climbing at all. And that uh, would just shrivel, shrivel my guts just even. Oh, really? But then uh, I, th- I think that being able to, I think by the time I actually got into climbing, because I came from running, which is not a dangerous sport, aside from the fact that it beats the crap out of your body and you can go insane. <laughs> but um, so by the time I got into climbing, I was well aware that people were dying doing this. And I was also well aware that um, I didn't, I didn't want to take the, you know, risk of death on a regular basis anyway. I just wanted to explore things. I wanted to be able to go up in the mountains and competently get to the summit of pretty much any mountain I, I wanted to look at. Um, the one, the difference there with Pete, Pete describes himself as being kind of more um, a little aimless as a youngster. Uh, the one thing I knew about myself is that I'm a maniac mm-hmm. in the <laughs> sense that I always had something I was obsessed with. So when I was a little kid, when I first found out about dinosaurs, I literally would just draw dinosaurs all day long. That's all I cared about. And I would study them and learn about them. And the teachers would like, you know, work with me on it. And then I'd go through my dinosaur phase and then I'd go into another phase. And I'd, and instead of like, I, I got into a model building phase and World War II in particular, I built models of all the tanks and airplanes and stuff. But it wasn't enough to just buy a kit and build it. Mm-hmm. I had to like build them from scratch and wow. things like that. You're just completely really making it. it my own thing. And so I get totally obsessed. And I could like days would go by. I just be focused on one project or something like that. So I, was, I knew I was like that. And I, I suspected with climbing that if I got too deep into it, that I'd, I'd, go, I'd, I'd end up dead mm-hmm. because... <laughs> Then the other thing, the context here is I consider the 70s as being the most dangerous decade of climbing in history. Because before the 70s, well, obviously it was dangerous back before the 60s. In the 60s, they had the the, the hard pitons, the chrome molly, is that what it was? So Chouinard invented these hard pitons that could be reused so you could have good, safe protection, relatively speaking. Whenever you wanted, you could just bash that thing into a crack. Wow. And and that's much more solid than like a nut. Mm-hmm. Um, but would then, you, you have placements as available as a nut, or more available as a nut? Probably more, I would say. Okay. Yeah, more, definitely more. And it's kind of a hassle, but you could be safe. Mm-hmm. Versus one in the seventies, that was no longer cool to bang pitons, and I never banged any. Uh, so I'm learning how to climb on with no cams. This is before cams were popular. So the, the cams didn't really become popular until the eighties. So there's this period where we're climbing on crummy shoes, not very good ropes, really bad harnesses. If you had a harness at all, a lot of times people did a swami uh, that could break your ribs. And then you're climbing on these little nuts and hexes, which may or may not ever fit. And so, like I said, that, and I think that's the decade where Pete lost a ton of friends. Wow. And of course, people were doing alpine and crazy stuff there. So it was kind of like this expansion of the sport at the time when 
the pro transition protection transition was being made it was very dangerous until cams came around and even with cams it wasn't until the micro cams came out that trad climbing became a fairly safe sport up and down the spectrum mm -hmm. and so um so and that's i had to cut my teeth during that period when this new pro is coming out or hadn't come out and you're trying to push your way up through the grades and uh it's a very so it really paid off for me to be conservative and like pete said we just didn't fall mm -hmm. and i i would actually once i started free soloing i felt more safe and liberated a lot of the time free soloing because i didn't have all this gear hanging off me i wasn't you know, didn't have the pressure of a partner or time limit. I could just go up and explore. The, the biggest example of that is with kids because I've realized that a lot with children, not free soloing like bitches, <laughs> but <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> when you, um, when you try to like get up, you know, even like in, within the span of 10 feet, you know, yeah. um, it's, it feels like you're doing something. Yeah. And then without, I've seen children like, okay, I'd have to have a kid and I'd be, have to be encouraging for them to go and climb something. But then I have, to turn around and be cautious, tell them to be cautious because then they're over there, they're having a tough time with the climbing and being roped up. But then they're over there on this, like, you know, next to this 10 or 15 foot, like, you know, on top of this 15 foot boulder. And I'm like, Hey, wait a minute. Let's like, let's, let's just be safe right there. You know? Cause if you fell, like that's not, you know, but if I were on the rope, I'm having to do the exact opposite. And yeah, that, that goes back to that risk assessment mm -hmm. and the cognizance and all that part of it. And then, with sport climbing, um, you can kind of diminish that or even pretty much take it out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And this is a big thing I make, I emphasize with people is that sport climbing is the only outdoor sport that gets safer as you go up the scale. All, all other outdoor sports approximate death at the upper end. <laughs> if you think about it, yeah. aid climbing, trad climbing, r running rivers, surfing, all that stuff. You're going right to the brink and you're looking over. <laughs> um, whereas sport climbing, you know, if I'm on a 513 or my 514 project, once I clip that third bolt, unless someone really screws up, I'm not going to get hurt because mm -hmm. it's so steep and the bolts are close together. So. So that's kind of my haven, you know, mm -hmm. as an old man yeah. to like go up and be safe relatively for a lot of the, like while I'm pushing my limits and push it more as an athlete that way. And to me, that's a perfectly good trade-off. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, you know, all the adventurous stuff I did earlier is great, but I, I wouldn't push myself technically the way I can on the sport climbing yeah and see i find myself where being conservative and also very afraid and having to deal with because me coming into climbing it's not always relatively safe to fall right but the gear is really great so it's not much of the gear problem right and i could just do sport climbing and there you take out a lot of the inherent risk right um but it's hard for me to be able to overcome the reality of like everything is okay and then to commit. So being able to think about you guys being in a completely different paradigm in that sense, where I'm over here trying to convince myself that all these things or teach myself and condition myself that all these things are okay and I can execute, right? And do hard moves. Um, Y'all are in a whole different scenario where you you know find yourself doing those things as you're layering in more and more of the protection 
as the protection develops. So Jeez, everyone was in the same boat though. Mm-hmm. So nowadays, if you're a sport climber, you're in a different game than a trad and then and both of those are different than bouldering. Yeah. And so there's different risks and stuff. So I think that's part of the thing the in the seventies anyway, was that like it or not, everyone was in kind of the same boat and and a small community. And so a lot of it was word of mouth about like what was being done or who would do what with who or hooking up with a partner. So, um, yeah, so it's, it, it's not, it was not as objective. It was more, uh, and, and, and frankly, one thing that was a very, uh, strong consideration when you're climbing with somebody was not just their technical expertise, but would they, did they have the balls to kind of go for it when you needed to, but then not take unnecessary risk. So kind of that part of it, which nowadays is, you know, it's still important for a lot of it, but like, you know, at some point if with a Grigri and bolts and everything else, it's like, I don't care if my belayer can even lead, you know, five ten if they can belay five thirteen, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of a different, you know, uh, nowadays you have all more options and you just have to be able to weigh those options against each other. Mm-hmm. So going back to the timelines, yeah. we had, before we actually started the microphone, we, so we went over the timeline with Pete. He starts in high school, junior high? Um, first year of high school. High yes. school. Yeah, junior high too. And they're, they're kind of inventing the wheel, so to speak. Pretty much. And then going into, then you guys go into Leavenworth and just kind of discover like that whole community there. Yes, that's when we made contact with other climbers. For the first time. <laughs> and, and that was very thrilling. Mm-hmm. Oh, you climb? And we, we were just shocked that there are other people out there climbing. Did you, did you find yourself just staring at someone doing a lead and like trying to figure out what was going on? Um, yeah. And the f- first time we ran into people climbing, they were sort of climbing at our level, you know, just okay. kind of, you know. Okay you know, semi-competent, but not, and then we ran into this, this next um, generation of a few years older, you know, Al Gibbler, Mark Weigel, Meet Hargis, and they were, and then I, and then when I started climbing with them, I just saw how it was really done. Just the efficiency and the climbing at a harder level. I, I didn't figure that out. I, I, I only gleaned that off seeing other people who had figured it out ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have taken me another decade to figure that out. Yeah. I'm curious, how did you leapfrog from your buddies to climbing with those guys who were very experienced? Just from, just from the community. We all knew each other. We socialized. We ran okay. into each other. We camped together in Leavenworth in the yeah. same places. Yeah. And we just started climbing with each other. And it was all one big sort of family. And, yeah. you know, if you're a climber in the late 60s, you were climbing with all of them and you knew them all. And, yeah. and it was once click, you know, kind of a tight knit group. How'd that make you feel though, coming into that? Whereas like you, you start off like bookish and shy and just over time, you keep opening up and finding more and more like Remember he's a rock star at the end of high school. Yeah. Which I never experienced. <laughs> I, I never had a, a girl ever get impressed by any athletic feat I ever did until finally I dragged a girlfriend up the tooth <laughs> And she actually wrote a poem about my climbing. Oh. So that was when I made it finally. And that yeah. was, I was like 22 at that point. So Pete had already had a glimpse of <laughs> social, like, you know, yeah. coming out of his cocoon or whatever. 
So you're asking what it was like to yeah, because that must have been even that. more like having all these people climb and stuff and to oh, be accepted it just by blew them. My mind. And yeah, wow, it exploded my whole understanding of everything. Yeah, like like I kind of sensed like you know that there was this another level, but I didn't I didn't have a clue how to get there. Mm-hmm. And and the things that I was doing to try to get there would take forever. And then I just saw the efficiency of the way they handled ropes and the, just the efficiency and economy of their climbing. And just watching them, and, and I just—it seemed like I figured it out in a, in a week or two. Just watching wow. this next level, and then and then I just jumped, you know, from like five eight to five nine. Whoa. Just watching these guys climb. That's wild. Yeah, just just watching. And did you did you develop any like close uh, like men- mentorship or any kind of relationships with that? That's when people? I when I did, and that helped a lot because they had already figured out stuff that I hadn't figured out about how to climb, mm-hmm. you know, at a harder level. And so so climbing with them. Um, yeah, I, I become, became the um, the understudy maybe of a few people that I mm-hmm. climbed with enough to 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 say that. Yeah, because you yeah. develop quite a relationship with people if you climb with them pretty frequently. Back then, right? yeah, and it was all new. Everybody was they were these guys were putting up new routes and breaking the barriers. They mm-hmm. were like in, in a way that they were in the forefront of climbing, putting up new harder routes, and and they were making you know like the maybe the fourth or fifth ascent of South A wall or something on that gap. Wow. This group of people, I think like meet Hargis made the third ascent of a North America wall, perhaps, or um, Dan Davis made maybe the third ascent of North America wall meet Hargis, maybe made the fifth. So these guys were sort of on the, on the forefront of that generation. Wow. These guys from Seattle, they were yeah. really good. And Jim Madsen, of course. So they were, they were pushing the barrier, pushing the envelope. And we were at the next level below that, and I was watching these guys and sort of trying to study and figure out what they were doing to do that. Wow. You know, and, were, but I, were they learning from, like, the really good Yosemite guys? I think they were. Yeah, they went down there and started climbing with Jim Bridwell and all of those. They made okay. friends with them. So when I went down there, um, you know, that's how I met Bridwell and those other people through my through Al Gibbler and Mark Weigel and Meet Hargis because they were climbing – you know, right with those guys at that higher, harder level and putting up new roots in Yosemite. Whoa. And this is like the early 70s. So. Wow. And what were they, um, were they collecting in Leavenworth for? Was there just like, were they putting up a bunch of first ascents out of Leavenworth and oh, yes. stuff? Wow. Yeah, yeah, we were all, we were going up and testing our limits, basically. And, um, and doing it with, you know, this sort of, sort of half technical improvement and half adventure kind of culture or mindset, you know? So mm-hmm. a lot of it was still um, pushing your limits, but within the concept of maybe not rehearsing or there was no rehearsals. You always did it on lead, figured it out on lead. There was hardly any top roping. So they were pushing the limits on lead, basically these, these guys. Or we all were. Yeah. And to some extent, and that's where you're talking like, you know, you and your friends saying like, Oh, you know, you, why are you going to buy that magazine? You're not going to be alive. Like that's some commitment. Like, <laughs> well, people, yeah, I, I think back then it wasn't so much a sport as this experience, adventure experience yeah. and, and the risk was part of it. And, and everybody sort of understood that. And later it became a safe sport, of course, mm-hmm. but back then it, it really, you know, it was a different kind of understanding of what was going on. So I'm kind of pushing the progression line now. What at what point did you get the bug to put up to find new routes? Because that's something I know we that again we have that in parallel where we were both just repeating stuff, 
and then kind of got bored. And exactly. then, and then I, I just kind of almost serendipitous, serendipitously <laughs> had discovered new routing. And I think I can't remember the circumstances which you did. Well, the thing that blew my mind as far as understanding how to move forward, because I understood like putting up new routes was really intoxicating. And once you've had a taste of that, it's you can't go back to just area climbing and repeating other routes. Once you've had a taste of putting up new routes, for me, there was no going back. But then I was aware of the dangerous nature of doing that on lead, doing new routes, because you can get in over your head. And you want to do the route, but it's maybe not safe. And then, mm -hmm. and that's how a lot of people died from pushing their limits. Oh, because they can't like retreat you off. Can't of retreat, their... oh. you know, it, or you you just get run out, and then you don't know what's ahead, and there could be a really hard move, and you're like 25, 30 feet and out. Rock and yeah, and it could Whoa. be, and you just there's a move, and you don't know if you can do it or not. So what are you going to do? Take a chance, thirty <laughs> feet out? No, you're going to try to down climb, and maybe not be able to down climb. So there was a whole problem with me. And and that stopped me from really taking the next step that Brian, I think, is referring to. And what I finally figured out was meeting Brian. And I hadn't figured it out until I met Brian and we went up that the, the next probably way to do that is climb up to your limit, but don't go into that danger zone. What you do then is you back off and then um, maybe work the route from above. And, and so this is sort of like true confession time. Mm -hmm. So you, you wouldn't do that unless you had to. Mm -hmm. But there was a point where you couldn't really. And, and when we started climbing off of granite and getting on routes where you had to put in bolts, you couldn't really do that on lead, especially on that compact rock mm -hmm. of, of um, metamorphized basalt. So Brian's genius was figuring it out. And I, I had no... I was stumped and stopped progressing because I couldn't figure out how to do it safely. But you, okay, so you just kind of fast forwarded through. So I'm trying to go back to probably the early 70s when you were oh, uh -huh. going up to Amphitheater and Cathedral, I think. Was those, right. those your early? We were doing first ascents, but they were in the what, five, what, nine. Was there a first what? point where you went, suddenly went click? This was really intoxicating, like a specific. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I jumped past that. I just referred to it briefly. Yeah. You know, once I had the taste. Of first what, what route was that? Oh, it's probably like the south face of, uh, I mean, the southeast ridge of Cathedral, maybe. Okay. Or one or two. Okay. But I remember going up there like in 73. So I was like 22 years old. And that was probably, and I had done some. And there was like one route on Becky or something? Maybe? There was a Becky route on the south face. Okay. And then the southeast ridge was unclimbed. So we went up there and did that. And that really piqued my interest. But, but. It took another 10 years before I really, you know, grabbed it, you know, full-fisted full and went with it. It took 10 years of figuring out, well, I, that was really fun and I was doing that, but I couldn't break the 5.9 barrier mm. very easily unless it was well-protected, mm -hmm. you know. So I was in the 5.9, 5.10 for the next 10 years and not really progressing. Because of the but you were also doing big walls though too. You started... Well, we did egg climbing. Yeah, we did big walls yeah. up into the, yeah. So I like in, but then I was getting more into my thirties. So most of my twenties, I, okay. I knew it. You know, I knew intellectually like this is where it's at. 
<laughs> but I understood that it was dangerous. Okay. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm so you're kind of like in and out of it a little. Yeah. I was in and out. That's when I tried surfing and yeah, packing. Okay. I tried all these different sports, and I didn't focus probably until I met Brian and realized that you could do it safely, because by then I'd kind of grown out of that um, risk. I mean, I became risk adverse. Mm -hmm. Whereas in my twenties, I was probably taking chances I shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. And then when I became risk adverse, I was a little bit stumped, and I wasn't making much progress. So how does how does like a Norwegian buttress and Bear Mountain fit into this? These these are two uh, couple routes that at the time were groundbreaking in the Cascades, or like long term aid like big wall aid routes that were Yosemite type climbing, but in the Cascades. Wow! And 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 uh, Norwegian buttress is on Mount Index. That so oh very close, yeah. But on Bear Mountain, it was a, a face way tucked way back in the North Cascades. So these are very logistically yeah, involved, very difficult climbing. So how did those fit into that that whole? Well, the way they fitted in was they were a way to you know go experience the mountains and have the adventure, and they were relatively safe, and they were okay. more more uh, uh, a question of having the drive to okay. to put it all together. Putting all the work in. Yeah, and and, and I would go out uh, often for a month by myself even climbing. Whoa. And so to go off and do a big wall, I think like Bear Mountain took us 18 days from car to car. So we wow. spent 18 days. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, you know, hiking into Bear Mountain, climbing the face. And then one push. Back. Wow. Yeah, one push. Oh That's so epic. So, and, and we had already been in there the previous year and tried it and, Got too intimidated by the it was the diamond <laughs> kind of an overhanging face, yeah. so uh -huh. we did a one of the sub ribs off to the left, and that. But I wanted to come back then, and, and then try the more direct thing because we didn't have enough gear. Yeah, you know, we could just tell like it was going to take some aid gear more than we had, you know, ropes and stuff. So that was all. That seemed pretty reasonable to me. Yeah, I mean, there, Brian has maybe presented it like it's more than it was. You know, it's just. You know, it's like climbing El Cap. It's still, you know, it's just like doing an aid route and and, and, and you know running up El Cap or, or climbing diamonds. It's, it's all straightforward, as a matter of fact, and not as risky maybe as this other way of trying to push the limit on new hard free routes. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, so there's there's three climbs I'm thinking of. There's Bear. I'm not sure chronologically how they fall. There's Bear, Norwegian Buttress, and Dolomite Tower. Oh right. So are they? Are, is that the sequence? They were all. Yeah, it was. Um, um, Dolomite Tower was the third of the yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. How was climbing Dolomite Tower? Well, it's interesting because I sort of looked at Mount Bering. I'd been up there in the seventies a few times, climbing it. You know, we mm -hmm. we climbed uh, the Becky route, um, and and then I and I could see all this rock, but I knew that you know, like I I couldn't quite figure out how to climb it. Um, so I went back in the mid eighties and I went through uh, a few partners trying to get up to Dolomite Tower. So there's Bear Mountain next to it is Dolomite Tower, if you're, if you're familiar with it. And so that summer I went up with, uh, two different partners and they both didn't want to go at some point. They thought it was like too much. Mm -hmm. So I went back in September then and decided, well, I'd, we left our gear up there. So I figured, well, I'd either have to take it down or, or, or just go for it. I couldn't find anybody or I didn't even try because I was so sick of partners bailing out. <laughs> so I just went up there by myself and did it. And that was like a, an 11 day 
Um, Whoa! Solo. Wow! But, but I already done half of it, you know. So yeah, but you gotta realize this, eleven is, days. this is eleven days, oh, most of which were spent with no ledges bigger than maybe one foot in size. Yeah, and my hammock. Like the last time I was up there, I was up there with my friend, and he set up the hammock for me kind of wrong, and I and I ripped through it. Whoa! Yeah. So so I. Why. I don't know, somehow the hammock got destroyed the last time I was up there and I kind of forgotten about it, didn't pay attention. So um so when I went up there I, I didn't have a hammock and it was just harder than I thought and it just <laughs> I, I just assumed there'd be ledges and there and weren't there were no ledges, no, no ledges and bullet hard rock with almost no crack systems. So oh, he's right. so he's <laughs> doing hooks and copper heads oh my and gosh. run out and he'd do entire pitches. There's there's at least one pitch on there that we figured out after the fact it was Probably a five, which means if you fell, you die basically. Wow! And, and basically, the and just the little rivets and like the rock is like way harder than granite, and so you have to like, and he's hand drilling. And, oh you, and how many gosh. drill bits? How many like oh, twenty five drill knows? bits? Yeah. So he's breaking drill bits and trying to get all, and and so you're doing this whole huge face with a uh, actual bolts that are only quarter inch bolts anyway. You probably only used like a couple dozen, maybe. I think there were about twenty-five bolts. On yeah, the oh my God. which which for like you know a thousand feet of of blank climbing, through roofs and all that stuff. So it's like this insanely like incredibly ballsy. Oh my thing God. With with no sleep basically because he's just hanging in slings at the oh, night. Wow. And uh, just full exposure the whole way. And uh, the and there's that and this is one of the the nodes in this whole thing between me and Pete where we coincide again because I'm at the low point of my health crisis that I had in, my mid in the mid-80s. And I would just go up and hike to Barkley with binoculars. I look up, I could see equipment up there. And I'm like, oh, someone's climbing this huge face, you know. But I didn't know who it was or what, what was going on. And But Pete's uh, final push, yeah, 11 days into September. And did it go bad weather-wise, too? It was kind of rainy. Yeah, off and yeah. on rainy, yeah. And then so, and then you came back down. I remember you said something like you were, you got sciatica or something. Like you could barely move. For I, like a, I couldn't. I after being in stirrups for say nine or ten days, standing up in stirrups, I couldn't. Or blasey. That's all I could before I got to a a ledge. And by the time I got to a ledge, I was basically off the climb. There were no ledges on this climb for some yeah, reason. Yeah. I um, lost feeling in my legs, and so I came home, and I had to have my. I couldn't, my hands were all a mess, puffed and swollen. Couldn't, oh I couldn't gosh. untie my rock shoes. So I hiked out my rock shoes, couldn't untie them. And then that, my first night in a bed, my, all my legs swell, swelled up. And I couldn't walk. So I couldn't walk and everything went numb. Like I abused my legs so much by standing for 11 days that they went numb. And then they, after a day or two, they gradually got feeling except for my feet and then my feet stayed numb for months and months oh, oh my gosh oh. months and months i couldn't feel my feet but my legs came back but the first night when i laid down um i couldn't walk i woke up in the middle of the night and, and shock had settled in or something yes. and i had to like crawl to the bathroom and i couldn't walk just oh. from the abuse that i put on it by standing up for 10 days straight that is wild yeah like like like, like the cia should learn that technique if <laughs> yeah, they want to yeah. get some information yeah. waterboarding yeah. yeah. water put them in a play seat yeah. so this wow. this starts to put a good context in the whole thing we we're talking about 
like you were still trying to figure out how to do first sense and still be relatively safe because what you experienced is you'd gone from from bear which was relatively safe but you know obviously a big project to uh to norwegian buttress which was relatively safe but a lot of work maybe was there some runouts and stuff on that too um, we, we were doing that but it was sort of More acceptable yeah, yeah yeah but then with with the uh, development tower that pushed you be, kind of beyond that that safety zone and that's probably where you were like kind of like for, like reaching a dead end maybe somewhat well I, I i realized that finding partners that wanted to do that kind of stuff yeah. was difficult yeah and to do it on my own uh, i you know i kind of outgrew that after that i decided to you know i'm not going to do these kind of risky climbs yeah. anymore yeah. and then i was sort of a, at a standstill um as far as conceptually how to proceed because i knew i you know it was a kind of a a dead end to, to continue what I was doing, kind of risky climbs. And then I met Brian and Brian, like I was kind of referring to earlier, had the sort of the vision and, and the, to see that, you know, you can work it up to a point and then maybe, you know, you could work it from above mm -hmm. to put in these bolts to make it safe. Because on that kind of hard metaphor, metamorphized basalt, there are no cracks like in granite, so, but there are a lot of face holds. But you can't really stop and put in a bowl because they're so small at that <laughs> level of 510, 511. So really, it, it just sort of made sense. And, and, and Brian said, oh, yeah, we'll just drop down from a, above. And then all of a sudden, there's this thing I never even knew existed, which is a mechanized um, rotor hammer. Oh, bowl. wow. <laughs> I had yeah. no idea they existed until I, Brian had one. Just a hand drilling the whole time. Oh, yeah. I, I had no idea that, the, that people were doing that because yeah. I was sort of off my own little, you know, Orbit a little detached from what it was may, going on. It might be a possibility that I might be the first American climber to use a rotor hammer in an alpine route. Because I borrowed a rotor hammer from one of the sport climbers at Index, mm -hmm. Max Dufford, and went up to um, finish a route on Mount Persis that I'd been working on for over a couple of years. And I on lead, I put in the, the bolts on that climb. That was an 80, I want to say 80. I guess Persis, when he finally finished, it was 85, but I think that was 84 that I was using the, so those, these drills were brand new at that point. Whoa. But I was with you and we started on Persis. Well, that was later. That was, oh, that, we were, did, that was there was a motorized I done it with Greg. Or oh, with, not, with, not with Greg. Went up there with Greg, did that lead bolting, and then went back um, with, um, what's that guy's name? Anyway, went back, did the whole thing free, ground up, and then... Uh, but I was still a trad ground up climber. I wasn't really a sport climber, but then I started dabbling with the sport climbing, the dark side, <laughs> uh, wrapping in, uh, over at rattlesnake ledge and then eventually exit 32 and exit 38. And at that point I kind of figured out the system of top roping, you know, self belay, you know, the, getting the drill, you know, there and everything. And it v very quickly made sense to me to translate that to something like Dolmite Tower, where Pete, Pete and Greg and I had kind of sieged it um, from the ground up and got about halfway and we're doing crazy stuff on the lead and stuff. And at some point I'm like, this is, I, I, I there was a trade-off I realized what was gonna happen. It's like, I could keep doing it this way, but I'm not gonna end, I could see that there was better climbing to be had 
if I could just repel in. Mm-hmm. In other words, I wouldn't have wouldn't have to follow the weakness. Yeah. And um, so we, Pete and I, finished that first route, but we, like I said, we wrapped in to get through the upper section. Oh, and that was after I'd gone up with Pete, and he repeated one of the aid pitches, and we were both so gripped on when he was doing that that we that's that was the I think that was the tipping point where I said, hey. Tell you what, we'll come back with a bunch of ropes and wrap into this thing because <laughs> I don't want to watch you die here. You know, like, this was crazy. Whoa. So, uh, yeah, so that climb was kind of a fulcrum point in, I think, in just in alpine climbing in, in, in the U.S., really, because wow. no one else was doing this in the, in the alpine. Todd uh, Skinner was doing it on El Cap to free El Cap at that point. Um, and people kind of frowned on that because you know all the fixed ropes and stuff. Well, and now they all do it. But. And it changes even the way that you were that you're going to plan the route out. Yeah. Because of what you said before, where you're not just stuck to following strictly that weakness, yeah. and you can get an overview with it, right? Yeah. Because then I, I, we did the. It took five years to get the first free ascent of Dolomite, and then that was from '88 to '93, and then I went back a year or two later and started a line that was right up the rat rather than winding around. Whoa. And then at that point, Pete um, got the bug as well. So he was simultaneously working several other routes uh, on either face on either side and, and also on Mount Bering. So in the time it took me to put a, to finally, to get in basically one and a half routes, he climbed probably like six or seven other routes that were, <laughs> I was kind of jealous because he, he wasn't concerned about what other people were repeating it or, you know, mm-hmm. trying to make it fancy or anything. He would just go climb. Yeah. And he'd be out there and he'd be knocking off these routes. And I'm like still on the, you know, trying to figure out how to, you know, get the next pitch bolted and all this stuff. So there was like two games going on there, but I think they were both like, you know, fun, but there was just like, uh, yeah, it was kind of funny how we just kind of independently, you know, had our own way of, I wanted to push my technical limits on a long route mm-hmm. right to my limit. And I did pretty much. Uh, whereas Pete was more interested in just, Hey, why not just have some freedom and <laughs> climb this thing? So we were simultaneously going back and forth on. That's cool. Here. And I think there are seasons where you would go up and I didn't go up or vice versa. Wow. So it was kind of an interesting period. That was the nineties basically. And, and when you guys were doing that kind of thing, were you guys pretty close then or was your relationship yeah, building? Yeah. Wow. That's cool. So. And for, for just for people out there who might not understand the difference between the hand drilling and, and having like the roto tool, um, how much more is it like, how much more efficient is it to have that? Or what's it, what's it like? It's incredible. I mean, well, depends on the rock a little bit too. Like hand drilling granite, like if it's like washing past granite that I'm used to, if I'm hand drilling with uh, a three eighths inch drill bit, and I know from experience, is my one time I went up with a rota hammer and the battery was dead and I didn't know it, and so I had to hand drill it with the bit, and it took about twenty to maybe thirty minutes to do that whoa but see, that's a good solid bolt uh versus on rhino rock which is what yeah. now we're climbing on uh dolomite and stuff I, i've never even tried uh three eighths inch uh hand drilling it would be a, it, wow. it would take at least an hour oh and, more often yeah. i'd spend hours on a bolt what 
hours. That's not a quarter inch, bulb. right? Whoa. Quarter inch bulb. Yeah. Yeah. So three eighths would be like out of the question. Yeah. And, and yeah, so and now like on uh, with the good drills now, I can place a half inch, you know, four inch hole, uh, half inch in a matter of like a minute, two minutes, and you know, and and obviously much, much more uh, and. And with the right drill, you can put a lot of holes in pretty quickly. So, wow. so that's how you end up with routes that, like, in Mazama, like uh, Flyboys and these long vaulted routes, because it, it, there's, it, it's you're mechanizing the protection part of it. Yeah. Whereas, um, but when you're doing something like on bearing, you had to haul everything with you. So, it became it's it's still got a, an adventurous flavor to it where. I would go all the way up there and it would take three days to get to a certain point and then my battery would go dead or break a bit and not, you know, it's like there was, it, it wasn't ruthlessly efficient like yeah. like you might think, but at least, at least the way I was doing it, I was not, not the most organized. Wow. It takes a high degree of organization just to be able to pull it off, I imagine. And, oh, yeah. At least. And then logistically, like, that's what I mean. Like the logistics there's are unimaginable. There's a commitment factor with uh, particularly the, the vanishing point, the route that went through all the roofs because I would wrap into it and you have to wrap in through the, to this uh, 25 foot roof. And that was kind of complicated. And then, then you would start doing the face below it. But if something happened and you're up there by yourself, yeah. And and especially at the point when the ropes didn't reach the the big ledge down below. Oh. So you yeah, I mean you could have taken a rope and then started rappelling down. Mm -hmm. But it's there's a definitely commitment factor that's that wasn't like a typical sport climbing development mm -hmm. until at least you had the whole thing fixed with ropes. And with that you have all that exposure too in the midst yeah, of Yeah. And just yeah, it just becomes a a bit of a head game and uh but it, but it's fun once you kind of you know because work your way into it and if you have all of everything that dialed it's relatively safe yeah i mean obviously i'm still here so <laughs> there were definitely occasions where i caught myself you know like not being hooked up properly oh right. gosh well but, that's what i really like like about you guys um and i admire about you guys is you know especially like you pete in the sense that you almost have this like you were um, taking on a lot of risk and you become risk averse, but you find a way to like, to have these experiences and continue to mitigate it for safety in that way. But while still pushing it and being bold, like that's a really hard balance to strike. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the fun part of, you know, putting in new kind of longer routes. And in the, at the same point too, we were also doing, stuff like we went up to we did uh, a really cool route on um mount slessy slessy mountain and it was a 22 pitch 511 called navigator wall Ooh. and that was literally walking to the bottom with just a rack you know wow. and and we did a, a bivy half two-thirds of the way up and that was definitely an old school where no bolts no pins just went for it and wow. it worked out beautifully a lot of route finding on that one and actually the there's a there was a guy that who young guy who unfortunately died a few years back who was a very bold soloist and he free soloed pretty much all the east face routes on Slessy. Whoa. Including the northeast buttress. Um uh he has kind of a French name, 
But anyway, he um, he thought that Navigator Wall was the best of the four. I think it was four routes that he was selling. Oh, really? So I think he did them all in a day or something. He was, yeah, he was he was out there. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so we we're doing stuff like that as well. Uh, in addition to like bearing and whatnot, and, and all, and the, so it was kind of a transitional. Because well, bearing was your guys' like a large focus for you guys for a while there. Uh, yeah, it was, it was our, it was it was our. It, we were just kicking ourselves the whole time because it's like, where is everybody? Because there's all these really good climbers around, but we just happened to catch a, a point in the development uh, in Washington anyway where people weren't climbing that technical routes in the Alpine and definitely the Rhino thing was not working. You know, people weren't into that at Wait, all. So what is the, what's the Rhino? So Rhino is my name that I came up with for um, metamorphosed volcanic rock that is occurs kind of uniquely in the Cascades, but it, it occurs in like three main areas. One is uh, exit 32 and 38 and North Bend. And then, uh, the area around Mount Bering and Index, and then uh, Mazama. And all these are uh, big chunks of volcanic rock that got heated up by adjacent granite. And so there's granite nearby, but then you're climbing on this uh, rock that's uh, very dense and it goes anywhere from feeling like granite to feeling like limestone. Lots of face holds usually. Um, may or may not take a lot of cleaning. Um, but it's harder to drill and, and there's not like the splitter cracks that go on for, you know, many, many pitches like granite. So, so it's a different ball game than granite. Is like developing routes. Did you guys have like a particular fondness for that kind of rock? Well, it's just a huge line sitting out there. And no one's done. <laughs> I mean, when you see Dolomite Tower, I'm, like the lines on that thing are just as classic as any, anywhere. And no one was even sniffing at them. Wow. We we thought we'd have all this competition. <laughs> we'd go up, leave our gears up, and no one had a clue. Like we we're just you know doing it's that low hanging fruit, right? Well, it's just kind of like people weren't looking in that direction, or didn't might not have had. They were simultaneously. Um, they started doing long uh, sport. Uh, bolted routes on Upper Town Wallet Index. Mm-hmm. Remember Carl Kyle? I did the first one, and um, and he would ask me about some of the logistical stuff that I was doing. But so there was that development going on in in Index anyway. But it wasn't happening uh, in the mountains the way we were doing. And then after that, um, did you guys start doing more developing afterwards? Like how did well, you I got hardcore into just era sport climbing development, like. Mm-hmm. Zama, North Bend, and all this, and then uh, Pete kind of went off in a different direction. What direction <laughs> did you go in? Cool direction. Um, well, Brian got into sport climbing, I guess, and then I went out into the backcountry. Or is that what we're talking about? Or yeah, the yeah. backcountry and and um. I enjoy camping out, so I would hike into a nice lake where there'd be good climbing and just spend a few years climbing out of one place wow. in the uh, Cascades on granite, some nice granite, you know, in these places. Mm-hmm. And I would just, it was just like going to summer camp or something for me. I just enjoyed. That's a good way. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah. yeah so I, I never, and there would be nice rock I would see and say, Brian, you should like up the end of the Shawak Road, you know, in uh, the Okanagan, say, Brian, 
should see this rock. It's really good. It's sitting in the road. And Brian said, oh, well, why didn't you didn't you want to climb this? No, no, it's too close to the road. <laughs> so, I, so I would go way back for a few days and then find a place and hang out for the summer. Wow. Yeah, so if it isn't a full day's hike, Pete would lose interest. Really? And if it, and if it wasn't a, a 20 minute hike, then I'd kind of lose interest. That's wild. <laughs> so we kind of partitioned so we, the. We partitioned the, the cascades <laughs> along those lines. Yeah. Luckily, yeah. We, and then, and then we'd hire each other, well, not hire, but we'd invite each other over to work on a project or help out. You know, so Brian would come over and do something with me and I'd go help him with something. So there was some cross. What do you call it? Contaminant cross pollination there. Yeah. But um but, but generally at some, at some point you just bagged with the climbing part and just start doing the, the Oh the, the I, traveling. Yeah. I mean Yeah, and then and then I seem to have um got a taste of high backcountry off trail travel in, in the Cascades and then spent um uh kind of gradually climbed less and less and did more hiking but on ridge lines that might go on for days at a time if in the cascades is there any like any particular area that you had of that you that you look back on fondly for off-trail navigation well i would pick projects and and work them and so we you know my friends and i we would you know like find a new way to circumnavigate say glacier peak or even like the Wonderland Trail, Mount Rainier, we'd do a, a, a high traverse for a day off the Wonderland Trail and meet up with it again, Whoa. doing a high route. Uh, but but nothing technical, no, no glaciers, but mm -hmm. snow fields and stuff. That's cool. So we, we look for possibilities because they built the trail system in this state, you know, up valleys, you know, where it was easy. But if you mm -hmm. once you accepted a little more scrambling and stuff, you could follow ridgelines for days and connect them and, and do very interesting um, backcountry traveling. They're called high routes. And they're, some of them are mentioned in Becky's guidebooks, mm -hmm. but a lot of them, you know, are still out there yet to be done. And we were, we were discovering those. And a lot of them would follow the, uh, the circ of a, a drainage system like the Foss river. And we would just follow the whole circumference of the, of the circ that drains, you know, the oh, Foss river so cool. or other, other, river systems you know that we all know we, we would follow the ridge line that would create that surf especially in this environment here because everything's so socked in from from the bottom of the valley but they're the valleys themselves are very beautiful and i find when i like travel you know deep in the valley um for me anyways you'd miss out i'd miss out on a lot of like getting like that overhead view and those high routes have become something that I've been increasingly interested in over the past few years. He's a guy to talk to. He's done amazing, like huge loops and connections. And so like, like I do, like I'll find a wall to do sport climbing and I'll uh -huh. like do like four or five routes and I'm like, Oh, if I link this route to this route or whatever, yeah, I can come with all these permutations or, and they're all like uniquely, you know, cool. And so I'm doing it on a micro level. With face holds and whatnot, mm -hmm. and then Pete does the same thing, but he's doing it laterally through these huge, wow. you know, ridges that go over valleys and stuff. So he he's he's seen uh, way more of the Cascades in in some kind of detail than I than I'll ever see or any of us will. But but it's like uh, 
it's again it's like a finding a niche that's basically to, got to himself like it sounds like there's a few other people doing that stuff mm. and that kind of overlaps with the ultra running stuff that you're, yeah yeah well so. that's that's actually how i find got into the high high routes just a little bit because i got into ultra running because i thought it would be a good thing to do like in terms of you're going to run and it's healthy for you. And if yeah. you run really far, you don't have to run really fast. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized that like running really far wasn't worth it. Even I like, I, I like to go really far, but if it was far and flat and far and like on a wide open, like horse trail, maybe I, I just, I don't want to do that. And like, I go back and forth a lot to where like some things you should like, you should wash the dishes even if you don't want to. And is, is that what running has to be or like, you know, exercise. And I realized that liking the off trail navigation, um, and liking climbing and being in these Alpine environments, but not being able to be very risk averse, to be honest. And I think a lot of that maybe single father kind of plays into it subconsciously. And that's where I've like had to respect that. Everything you do, you're doing as a team with a kid. Yeah, exactly. Even if he's not there. Yeah, and that's why when I go up to go do something, I've actually been a lot easier on myself to where it's like, well, duh, you're like inherently risk averse here. So with the high routes, it was a combination of all those things. And I found out that like my favorite thing was like there's certain ways of experiencing something that I really liked. And I found that in climbing and in running, but high routes – combined like all of it because it's like what you're saying like he's planning it on like you know the big like big picture on these big landscapes and you're doing it on this micro scale Mm -hmm. i really love like putting it all together and figuring it out for yourself i've never done a first ascent but i would wonder if that would be really intoxicating yeah it's if it's you know it was funny though it's a lot a lot of people are totally competent and i respect a ton they they might do it first ascent or even with me or Pete or whoever, and they do it and they go oh that was fun but then they just kind of like move on they don't get hooked mm-hmm. and I, and either it's too much of a hassle or whatever it was, but for a few people it becomes like obsessive you know yeah. and so like yeah it's like that's pretty much all I mean that's like the backdrop of everything that I do in my lifestyle and and Pete's kind of same way with his projects but um i think it's a healthy thing i mean as long as you have it you know there's been years where i didn't really put up any or very few new routes and then other years where i do hundreds or whatever and that's it doesn't sound like you're like you know become no do anything notable necessarily because you put all this like pressure and expectation on yourself or even that you were consistent on a yearly basis right for the both of you there right is, like in in my game it's a there is another factor which is that there are other people that are also putting up new routes and i there's a big motivation for me if i find a wall uh to do it in the way that i want to do it mm-hmm. i need to get there first it's only matter do it first because yeah. i don't want to you know and i've had it happen where i Fortunately, I've been really lucky with like Mazama and North Bend and stuff that I can pretty much pick and choose and do what I wanted. But it's kind of gotten to the point where it's it's like I, there's certain lines I wouldn't want other people to do because they just don't do the cleaning or the bolting or whatever in the way that I like to see it done and that I would want to share with other people. Mm-hmm. So 
and there's a kind of a spectrum too. There's routes that I'll do that it's like, well, that was fun. You know, I might solo it or whatever, but I'm not going to bolt it or I'm not going to clean. I just, it's, it's kind of like, let it, let it, just let it be out there. But then other routes like, oh, I definitely need to clean this properly, bolt it, make it accessible to a lot of people. So it's like a whole spectrum from, and I, and I, I definitely have gone a route where it's kind of bizarrely and unique is that I like cleaning and putting, you know, easy climbs. And it's, it's probably safe to say definitely in, in America, if not the world that I might've, I might have cleaned and bolted more sport climbs five, nine and easier than anyone in history Jesus, because crazy. I, I, cause it takes, you know, I, I take people just don't understand it, it. I budget just for the cleaning part of bolting of routes. If it's a, a route that's like under five ten, uh, it's like an hour per ten feet or something like that. Whoa! Yeah, and, and the, the, I think the record is I I spent a full week on a ten A in North Bend. It was a pretty long pitch, and I actually went back to it this last summer and it was like, oh, I gotta clean this again. Oh, <laughs> you know, it's been gosh. twenty years. <laughs> I was like, shoot, it's like Sisyphus, you know, yeah. pushing it up the hill. But it's a really fun climb, and mm-hmm. and people do it, and it's fun. But the, yeah, the beginner and and so that aspect of it is kind of. Um, but I enjoy that. I enjoy the hard work. I enjoy the process of seeing something going from unsafe and not fun to climb to clean and fun to climb. And well, that's where I feel like it's like a body of you know body work and, and like a piece of experiential art in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it's and it's a matter of too like. I'll think about certain like oh so and so is really gonna like this climb mm-hmm. you know so and so like oh they want a five eight you know crack of a certain size or they want a sport climb of you know so I'll, like these are things I can share with friends even beginners or whoever and I can keep them in mind or keep that in mind and there's some level of like planning that lends itself to creativity while you're doing this yeah because yeah, I'll look at a whole face and I'll have the whole thing to pick from. It's like, where do you start? And, it, you know, it's, again, it's kind of like, at some point you just kind of like, it just kind of flows and happens. Mm-hmm. But then other times I'm a little more systematic, like, okay, this is a line that I need to do now before someone else comes along, <laughs> you know? So it, there's there's a whole spectrum of, of a game in that respect. And, you know, whereas there's other routes that are so involved and so involved so much labor and I'll have ropes on for years and people won't even t- go near them. Whoa. Because there's just not it's just not even worth it to them. <laughs> and so I don't even worry about that. But but uh yeah. But to it, you it is. Yeah. So it's like that that's a whole part of that whole mosaic is like and I don't know, does that happen when you're with your hiking stuff at all, do you think? Like wondering like, oh, you know, if I go through this area versus another area, do you like pick and choose depending on Maybe what other people are doing. Or... Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Is do you do you also like try to do you have a hard time like reading about the information or like um, letting the cat out of the bag before you go have the experience? Because with the high route, a lot of it you're planning it yourself, right? Not researching it and just getting explicit beta on the route you're going to do. Yeah, I'm not sure I understood the question. So do I? 
some people what i find now is like i had some friends that um they introduced me to the high routes like mm-hmm. their high routes and they they do them and they write so one of them writes a blog you know um and he was saying that he didn't want to give me i didn't ask for like the gps information oh, but yeah, yeah it seemed like there was this like kind of ethic to to not get download a gps track and just follow it but to look at the terrain and look at you know a map and plan your route out yeah we generally just look at the map and pick it and and i think after we've done the high routes that we knew about that there was data about or had been done before we kind of moved on to doing our own so of course there's no data or mm-hmm. um whatever the other terminology is um beta so we just went up there and figured it out from the map and did it there's no beta to have because nobody really probably done it before mm-hmm. that, that had written about it at least so a lot of it's done in that manner so you'll go out of your way to go and find those things that nobody's done before not really what we did is we did all the classic high routes you know like the wilderness lakes and all the classics and then we just started moving on to ones wanting to repeat the experience but we've probably done all the ones that we knew of Mm-hmm. And then we just thought, oh, well, what about this ridge? And we we do that ridge. And some of these, you know, would take a long time, you know, years even to. to wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's wild. it's a very um, it's a whole different sport than than people realize, perhaps, mm-hmm. because there are a lot of these ridges that um, they go on for, you know, 40, 50 miles. Wow. And you can follow them for a week. Whoa. The Cascades are amazing. That's yeah. amazing. And not many people realize that. Yeah. But there are, there's a lot of, um, um, I don't know how you describe it, geography that lends itself mm-hmm. to that particular activity. Yeah. Cascades that are, um, you know, not user friendly at first. And then we sort of make them into a climber's trail mm-hmm. or a fisherman's trail to a lake. That, that kind of um, secondary trail system that exists. So they're not official. Um, I don't want to get myself in hot water here, but there's a whole <laughs> system. Every peak has a climber's trail up it, right? Yeah. And every lake has a fisherman's trail to it. Mm-hmm. And the whole trail system, you know, partakes in a small percentage of these opportunities. They just go up some valleys to some lakes and the rest are ignored. So there are all these lakes with no trails to them, but there are climber's trails up these every peak and fishermen's trails to every lake. And then when you think about all the ridges, then, well, then there's going to be a ridge line trail mm-hmm. for every ridge line. And when you kind of figure that out and put it all together in your head, you understand what's involved, which is, you know, negotiating terrain that's off the grid. Oh. And there's a whole wealth of opportunity in the Cascades and probably everywhere in the mountains, you know, in the West that present these cells. And I know they're doing it in Colorado and other places too. Cause I, you know, I talk to people who do that and, go off and do these. And I know the people, you know, there's a little community, if I can call it that, sounds pretentious, but there's a few <laughs> diehards that love doing that. Mm-hmm. And they, they love nothing better than getting off trail and, and doing something like that, putting up a, a climber's trail or a fisherman's trail or a, or a ridge running trail, that, wow. that nature. And, 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 you know, it's a very small click and they, you know, they, they, but they love it because once you had a taste of it again, you can't go back to hiking a regular trail. Once yeah. you've had a taste of that, hiking a regular trail is just seems like, well, what's the point? <laughs> well, it's like, it's like the, on a smaller scale, but 
very uh, now very developed is uh, Tiger Mountain mm -hmm. near Seattle. And it's got initially it was just guys kind of like Pete that were like, oh, let's go. They would give a name to like a bump on a ridge or something. And like, well, let's let's find a trail that goes to that or whatever. And they just kind of like start cutting and bashing it in or whatever. And pretty soon it became a whole network and it got to a critical mass and being so close to Seattle. Now it's like thousands of people every weekend are out there mountain biking and, wow. you know, hiking and run trail running and everything. So it's like this whole park that just was built by volunteer, you know, labor, basically, you know, especially like how I developed crags. Mm -hmm. just get there and like, oh, hey, well, let's go up this section and whatever. So it's kind of like this community development or it's a very organic process, I think, that's logical and it's usually tied into accessibility and things like that. So like the way I develop a sport crag right next to the road is going to be much different than, you know, doing a route that's, you know, hours hike in or whatever. Um, so it's just like a, you kind of pick your battles that way mm -hmm. and then and then pizza and with pizza niche it's probably the same thing it's like you know you you get get to a certain point where you're so far in that you're just you know finding uh you know figuring out just how to make everything connect is probably a big challenge because mm -hmm. you you run into sections where you have to like the ridges don't line up somehow or you know, you have to figure out a logical connection and, and you got logging roads to work around. There's all sorts of ways to, to, to put together a, a trip that has coherence, you know, yeah. makes sense geographically to go from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can um, park your car and start up one side of the valley, get on the ridge, follow the ridge, come back a week later and come out of the bushes right where your car is on the other side, you know, coming down, go up one ridge, like I-5 corridor, for instance. Mm -hmm. You can park your car at exit 38, I think. Mm -hmm. Park your car there right when you get off I-90. Park your car there, hike up Mount Washington, follow the ridge line from Mount Washington all the way to the PCT, cross over on the PCT the other side and follow that ridge line back. And a lot of it, you know, you're just, there's no trail. Wow. You know, maybe a third or half of it, there's no trail. And then you work your way back to uh what's the name of that very popular peak oh, uh, mailbox. Mailbox. mailbox yeah, yeah. You, you follow the ridge line back to mailbox come down mailbox and then work your way back through the woods to i-90 instead of going out into the middle fork you, there's a oh. there's a footpath through the woods back to i-90 and you come out of the bushes you know 100 feet from where you parked your car when you hiked up mount washington <laughs> wow and, and that's a 60 mile trip it takes four or five maybe six days to do to hike the i-90 corridor and Brian calls it the, the Snoqualmie Rim Traverse, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like and it's skyline around. Yeah. The, so you're, you're following one ridge line, oh. and it's very uniform. You're, you're hiking. You know, there's not a lot of up yeah. and down like on the Ptarmigan Traverse. Mm -hmm. It's very uniform, 4,000 feet. You know, occasionally you'll climb a few hundred feet up or down. It's very uniform Whoa. and unique. And you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're up on this ridge line with views. And, and it's, it's just... definitely on my bucket list in terms of, like... Uh, like trail running or doing speed yeah. to do that, like in two days or something like that. Oh yeah. That would be wonderful. But man, it's like, at this point I'm, I've become a sprinter or, <laughs> or something like that. So it's like, I'm going to have to wait for a cycle of my training and everything to go back to, you know, longer ultra stuff to do that. But mm -hmm. um, wow. yeah, it's, there's some brilliant stuff out there. That just, you know, just 
it's that's that's really cool do you apply like certain constraints of travel um when you're planning the routes like you said before you you keep it non-technical right you do what the terrain tells you to do you follow the terrain sometimes you do some scrambling but the idea is to make it a hike and not a mountaineering experience Mm -hmm. you want and it's the scrambling you might find at the end of mcclellan peak or you know the haystack of mount Si. usually you go up to um grade two very occasionally grade three so basically the idea is you want to go light and non-technical no ropes and so if there's if you come to a cliff you'll you'll put in a leave a rope there rather than have to carry a rope you'll just leave the rope there and fix it like if you come across a little cliff and you don't want to have to hike all the way around but you want to just get down it and keep moving you just leave a fixed rope and then people you know maybe some knots in the hand over hand up or down it so you you want to make it um, suitable to somebody who doesn't want to carry a rope or be a climber. You want to be a, a cross-country, off-trail hiker. Mm, yeah. If, if that's the idea is to make it, you 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 go light and you go fast. You know, you just carry a bivy sack and a sleeping bag, and you know, go out for four or five days and go light, and and then see an amazing amount of terrain. You know, one day you can, like in, you know. Two days easy, you can go from, you know, Mount Washington to Snoqualmie Pass, you know, and then another two days coming back along the ridgeline and, and see a tremendous variety of terrain and lakes, visit lakes. And it's it's a wonderful hiking experience. And once once you've had a taste of it, it's really hard to go back to hiking on trails. Wow. That's because you're up high the whole time and marvelous views. And Yeah, you know, what's it like to be able to take in the landscape, um, given the geography here from from a great height like that? Because I notice when I'm down low, it's really hard for me to interpret and understand like the, you know, the cascades, even when I'm in like Washington Pass. But when I'm on top of like Liberty Bell, for instance, you're able to see like the ge- the geography at scale, right? It's, and it really impacts you. It's invigorating to walk along a ridge where it drops off on each side for days. And you're following one ridge and each side's dropping off with, with stupendous views, you know, of the surrounding areas. And to do that for days at a time, it, it really does. Um, you can see the peaks in the distance, oh, and yeah. slowly coming in. Yeah, oh, it's, you know, it's just in, it's yeah. kind of like through hiking on a trail system, where you know one day you can hike, start on the on the PCT, and and in one day hike twenty five thirty miles. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you're doing that maybe not the same mileage as on a trail because it's just more of a footpath, but just a sense of covering terrain and really interesting terrain. Wow. And then you're using all your muscles, just like in um, climbing, you're negotiating, um, scrambling up through stuff and you're using all your your, your whole body wow. that you don't do normally hiking. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's it's a whole different mountain experience in that sense. And then, then again, with Pete not being in parallel, I have like a parallel thing that I'm doing like, Starting out on Goat Wall at Mizama, did we talk? I can't remember if we talked before about the Gonzo thing. No, it's not. So what I want to do is, um, so there's all the climbing areas along Goat Wall, and it's a massif of about four miles or something like that. And but it's all these like crazy canyons and ridges, and then Goat Wall itself and ledges mixed together. And I've kind of figured out a route that I've done in sections, uh, but I haven't done an all one push where you're kind of you you go up to a climbing area go around to the top 
go along the top and then go cross country to the top of the next one. And then there's like occasional fixed ropes on exposed ledges and stuff. It's just amazing, like flow of, of travel through this kind of rough terrain, but it's uh, like it's like kind of more like horizontal mountaineering, where uh -huh. your your goal isn't the summit; it's it's the the actual travel itself. And you run into situation where you're going along, and suddenly you just drop into a canyon, and you got to get back out. Oh. And then on Goat Wall itself, it overlaps several climbing routes, and there's one point where you go up a canyon and you, you emerge on the ninth pitch of fly boys, you know, a thousand feet up Whoa. and you're just totally just standing there. You don't need any gear other than a harness, uh, you know, maybe a hard hat and you can just clip into a few fixed lines. So it has like fifth class exposure, but you're safe without technical climbing. Yeah. And then just linking that all the way across, it would be like either an all day thing or a couple of hours or whatever, but it's no real trail. It'll, it'll probably have like cairns and things marking it to kind of, make it follow you know followable but um yeah just something it's like something you would do like either as training for mountaineering or just for fun or you know an easy day when you're rock climbing otherwise mm -hmm. and you just wanted to go do something different kind of like canyoneering but instead of just going down a canyon you're actually traversing through a whole environment yeah and, and i and i foresee this being potential like going to like desert environment and finding mm -hmm. cool places where you can wander through their off trail. Yeah. Um, but in very, you know, with maybe incorporating more exposure and things than you would have in a regular trail. Um, you could have it on a, on a coastline. You could have it, in, you know, all these cool environments get people more engaged into the, you know, the small, smaller scale, but really interesting. Well, that's the thing that I find is interesting when you make like, you get like fifth class exposure or you increase like the, the technical difficulty, you know, of the space in front of you, whether it's vertical or you're on like a trail, right. Or scrambling, it makes it very small scale to where you can be in this little place for a lot more time. Yeah. And there's a lot more complex challenges in this little space. Yeah. And I, and Which I, what rock climbing is. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the things that I value like most. I talk about Erie and because rock climbing, I get to go to an overlook that maybe I would have only gone once every other year because I just sit there and look at the overlook, which is beautiful. And I like that. But now I go there like four days a week and I see the eagles flying over and like yeah. it's my ritual because yeah. of rock climbing. It's given me that small world kind of thing. Yeah. Sometimes rock climbing is just an excuse to go hang out in the woods, mm -hmm. basically, or which is fine. I think that's totally legit. And it's interesting, though, when you when you do these kinds of activities, because thinking more about like the first descents, it almost looks like you're in thinking about adventure and what adventure like looking for an adventurous experience. Really thinking about you, Pete, is like you apply these constraints to yourself, right, that are voluntary constraints in order to get this like abstract or like intangible kind of sensation and experience, right? Yeah, I think of it as adventure hiking mm -hmm. and um, just going off the beaten path a little bit and following these other natural lines that present themselves. And the terrain just presents itself and it just jumps out at you like, okay, we're going to follow this line here because it's just it's just geography, mm -hmm. basic and simple, that just demands that, you know, some sort of a traverse or, or down a valley. 
and it's just um, it's a whole other sport in, in, in a sense, in a sense. Yeah, and and I think that it's interesting even thinking about the whole you know I ninety corridor. Like you can drive a car through there and experience the beauty of of that, which it is beautiful going through that corridor and driving through there. But once you slow things down and you make the terrain more challenging to go through and there's no signs to point you in a direction, no clear trail, right? You're going to the same place in theory. You're a little higher up so you can see more. But because of you created that constraint, you actually get to have an experience that was unavailable to you before that. And, and the naturalness of the line just jumps out at you. Yeah. You know, like if you drive in up I-90 from North Bend to Snoqualmie, obviously it's it's a it's a river valley, the South Fork of Snoqualmie. Well, that's such an obvious line. It's it's I ninety, right? Mm -hmm. But <laughs> next to it, right next to it, is this obvious line too, just as aesthetic. Except nobody ever does it because wow. it just doesn't occur to them. Yeah. And there's some trails that intersect it, but but it's a uniform ridge from from the beginning of that valley all the way to the pass. It's a nice uniform ridge, that's, and you can just cruise. You can just cruise. You can just cruise. Yeah. Wow. You, you just, I want to check that out so bad. How like, quick you can go, and you know, in two days you're you're having dinner at the Snoqualmie Cafe, and then another two days you're back. You know, coming down mailbox wow, to your car. That's cool, and I like that because you get that remote sensation, and then you get to come back into s civilization yeah, like that. Like, oh, it's just wow. Somewhere we touched on something that, you know, all the time that I spend, you know, hundreds of day, days a year, pretty much cleaning routes and developing stuff. But I think part of it that I enjoy is just being able to hang out literally mm -hmm. on these environments and just you see the course of the weather and the day and whatever, and you're exploring all the, the climbing. And there's just something that's uh, this immersive experience. We talked about this a little last night, but just getting in this kind of flow state and you have this objective, but you're not in a big hurry. You know, it doesn't have to be done today you know, or whatever for the most part. So you have a lot of leeway and it just opens, it opens up your, I think your senses and your, it allows you to relax in some ways and then also be more alert in other ways mm -hmm. and so it's, it's just it's just another way to yeah be immersed in an environment and i think just being in those national environments is super healthy mm -hmm. just for whatever reason you're there and, and i think you know that's interesting about the both of you guys where where you develop and figure out what your niche is right uh, and i think that we're like finding ways to to have like a sense of meaning and purpose right? A drive to be able to be out, you know, in those natural environments and also to use your body too. Because both y'all like, just to be respectful are, you know, quite a bit older than me, but you guys are like really like healthy in terms of people. Well, I just mean like, I even grew up in like a big sedentary culture and a lot of people who are like, you know, older, um, they physically weren't able to do a lot of things in that way. And it seemed very painful. To, to like to to be in their situation but then i look at people like yourselves or in other people who have like this passions of moving their body or whatever and if they made it out the other side you know injury free it's like yeah i'd like to play for the rest of my life like that too with you know like and I, I think it 
yeah, in, in, for some reason, an early age, even when I was in high school, I knew, I knew I didn't have the talent to like you know go to the Olympics or even get a scholarship or anything like that in running. But I, I felt like I always knew that as an older man, old man, I would be a runner still. If I, if I could, it all make it work. It all, you know, and I didn't quite understand how bad injuries can be with that. Um, but I would see older runners I would, and I would be competing and I'd be running some pretty fast, you know, half marathons or marathons. And these guys with gray hair would go past me by. And I'm like, geez, you know, I'm 20 years old and this guy's like twice my age. And I was just really impressed by that, that people could stay in that kind of shape. And so I always, I think that was the experience that gave me this emphasis on longevity and just like sustainability yeah. uh, of that kind of thing. And just focus on my health so I can keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the cool thing is a lifelong thing. Cause so many sports, like if you're really into, you know, American football, for instance, you once you hit, <laughs> once you, if you're if you're lucky, you might make it through D one, and you probably end up getting injured and messed up anyway. And then then when you, you you know you might play flag football with your buddies or something, but there's just it doesn't have that extendability. Whereas with you know all the stuff that we're doing, you know I I, I always have a, I've you know uh, what do you call um, options? You know that even if I can't run, I can do this. You know mm -hmm. if I can't climb, I can still do this. And I would just still find a way to get out and experience that kind of thing get that and to get out there and just be out there because that's yeah. at the end of the day what you guys really enjoy is just being just, out there yeah and just be you know make that just integrate it into your life experience mm -hmm. you know, is it like a lifestyle yeah and it's just a nice and it's really cool to have that continuity so you know you can kind of like see threads of your life kind of following along just as mm -hmm. we've been talking here we can talk about the threads that Pete and I have kind of like woven to bump into each other and then go off in some other way. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's really cool to like follow your own path, but then also enjoy the part where it overlaps with other people or other, you know, or comes back. For me, it's come full circle where I'm going to try to relearn how to trad climb. Mm -hmm. yeah. I haven't really done a good trad lead in at least 10 years. And oh, so, wow. so I'm going to be, you know, and I'm just bought a, you know, ordered a new rack. So I'm going to kind of document that process of being kind of a beginner again and then learning, you know, getting confidence to lead cracks when I've been placing these huge bolts everywhere. Mm -hmm, yeah. So, so that's where, you know, that'll be a fun process. So, yes, yeah, so I, I feel really lucky that, um, you know, all these different experimentations and things do seem to come back and reinforce each other or the, their own. Did you guys have when you, when you did you guys have a time where you guys were parting ways in the 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 ways you were spending your time? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, we're both loners, so mm -hmm. we'll be like, yeah. We'll, <laughs> it's like, where's Pete? Oh, he's been gone about a week. We're not. We're not. We went, you know. So it's like, you know. But it, but it gives if nothing else, it gives you good stories to mm -hmm. tell. Like it's, as soon as I get back in the door from a trip. Pete, here's the whole bait, the whole rundown. Uh, yeah. You know, like, oh, this rock was so cool, or you know. And you understand each other on that level because you guys are, are oh, toe to toe. I sort of understand exactly what Brian's up to, and I think he understands or gets me, mm -hmm. even though we're doing different sort of activities. I think we both get each other as oh. far as what we're up to. I mean, we kind of admire it. Like, I man, it'd be so cool to like inject myself 
<laughs> experientially into like Pete's fingernail or something. Yeah. I just follow him through all that stuff that he's doing. And then he can follow me, you know, through all his, his climbs and stuff that I'm doing. So it's like, yeah, so that's just, that's the good trade off of, of um, you know, having friendship with somebody that shares a lot of values, but is also very different. Yeah. You know? And being confident in your guys' relationship, you know, in that. Yeah. And supportive and yeah it's it can be tricky but yeah i think it's very um yeah just emphasize the healthy parts that we share because like, i've even i've had to go through that my own self with martial arts and all these other things because like i have a lot of interests and they're competing for my time you know yeah. and i have friends who are like most of the time they're really into their specific thing yeah. And like, you know, I've even had my best friend now and he's going off more to like develop his jujitsu and teaching and competing. And I just didn't want to, that wasn't all my whole like time I wanted to spend. But that also inherently means that he's going to be spending time doing the ritual of, you know, martial arts at that level weekly. And so that means that some of that I'm not going to be spending with my friend as much anymore, but I'm making that a decision towards martial arts. And I have to be not let my friendship or feeling of that get in the way yeah. because like, he's always going to be there. And we're going to have that relationship, you know, independent of that. Even if we spend less time together, it's not, yeah. it's not really time spent together. It's like those, those good moments, you know, those like the stories you get to look back on together. Yeah. yeah. I think whenever you're off doing your own thing, it's sort of like maybe doing something on your own by yourself and you always want to balance that with staying connected with the human race, you know, yeah. friends and family and all that. So it's a balance and you all work it out to where it's right for you mm -hmm. as an individual. And now that you do like a lot of the high routes and stuff, do you spend your time um, on climbing or is that taking a full backseat? Um, it's, it's right now it's a backseat, but this coming summer will be the first summer I have and not worked, mm -hmm. you know, for 30 years. So I'm hoping to to balance the climbing with the hiking again. Mm -hmm. But the last four years, maybe I've just done these high traverses oh, wow. um, and hiked and neglected, you know, some climbing projects I have going. In those last four years, what's like the the project that you that you look back on the most or that you like hold in the highest regard for your high routes? Well, I've been working for three or four years on taming and i'm i'm saying that jokingly <laughs> taming a ridge that actually goes from mount tenerife to mount cleveland and it goes from say north bend to coming out over by skycomish oh and it just takes a long time because <laughs> i get sidetracked see the problem with me is i get sidetracked quite easily so i'll be following this main ridge line and then get sidetracked on sub ridges Same here. And, and there goes the whole, Same so that's, here. yeah, I, I'm sure I would have achieved much more of my life yeah. if I didn't get sidetracked so easily. <laughs> so, so that's been the last few years I've been just working on this one line. <laughs> so when you're getting sidetracked, is it like literally in the planning stages or when you're out there on the, or on your experience or on your hike? Well, it's more like, okay, it's April and, and the ridge will be snow free like late June and here it is April, but I, I want to get outdoors. Oh, well, I can just go up this valley and connect with the ridge up this valley and I'll spend the whole summer practically getting back up to the ridge that if I just hiked up from the other side, I would have been on, you know, in a day. And here I spend, you know, a month or two 
fight my way up some valley to get to it uh-huh. because I can't wait till the snow melts. So I'm starting in April. So by starting early, you start, you end up being... Oh, like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. completely yeah. self-defeating. It makes no <laughs> I, sense. I, I've done so much stuff. Yeah. Like that. That's what I mean by sidetrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but it's you have so much like passion and creativity there, you know? You're not short of that. It, it's... Yeah, being outdoors and doing something physical outdoors in whatever form you, you end up doing mm-hmm. is to me the, the most pleasurable activity i think yeah you know being outdoors and doing something not exactly work but physical engaging your body engaging. getting in that flow state yeah and the other thing that that pete and i share a lot a strong common is a interest in history like mm-hmm. particularly you know western history or whatever oh right and yeah, and so we have kind of like this theory, I think, that that in the human population, everything's kind of like this uh, normal curve. It's like a bell curve. Mm-hmm. And genetically, you know, you can have the main group of that, you know, the body of that curve is what you call normal people that, you know, they might do a little adventurous things here and there. But for the most part, they're just holding the center together, right? Mm-hmm. And then... And then at the tail end, either side, you have people that are just like literally have no sense of adventure, just want to, you know, build a bunker and hide out. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, other people that are or, or like super social and, you know, just do everything on the basis of social mm-hmm. interaction. But then you have people like Pete, me and Pete that say in a tribe of a couple hundred people, you know, Pete and I are the ones that like, are the first to like hot, uh, take off over a ridge for three days mm-hmm. and look around in the next valley or the next whatever to see what's out there and then come back and report to people like, you know, Hey, you know, there's such a, you know, a bunch of elk over in that next valley or yeah. whatever. But it's just like, there's certain people like they're, you know, that, that the, the urge to see new things overcomes whatever risk is maybe involved with yeah. that and and the willingness to be alone and just make your own way so i think that that pete and i are kind of at the very end of that bell-shaped curve in the overall population because otherwise that's the only way that's the only way we're finding all these new routes yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like i'm still finding hundreds and hundreds of new routes is because most people are sane and rational and mm-hmm. don't want to, to go through that it's hassle. not because of all your strategy and your planning to like to to do all of that it's more of a um, consequence of your personality yeah or, or at I least mean, your some, tendencies anyways. yeah at some point you can get strategic about it like build your lifestyle around so it makes it easier but that only accounts for a yeah. small portion of it like yeah. I, I would imagine and i it's interesting because i've never i often looked at it as more of like a dichotomy um but a bell curve would make a lot more sense because um there's such so much nuance between there because i'd have i always thought oh there's just some people they don't ever they don't want to travel and they just dream of staying at home and i thought they hadn't discovered traveling yet and i was like oh i felt like an asshole because like people can have different experiences than me and different values than i am right like that would be assuming everyone has the same values as i do that's not true but though you're i find that's hard to put a dichotomy there because there's people who like to travel a little bit or a lot or like me where if I have to go to the same place every day and I don't get to like go somewhere like new or I don't get to go and explore and off the trail, I like I go madness. And I've every job that I've had to where I have to like 
especially if I have to show up to the same place in the same station and then do the same like less than 10 tasks every day. I have a really hard time not being irrational and being willing to quit and like not make bills because it's very hard for me to show up. And then people adjacent to me don't have such a hard time. And I've always felt, or I've often felt lame. And, and then when I come up to like the ultra running and doing the competitive thing, similar thing, cause first isn't really like motivating me, yeah. but then like, trying to figure out how, first of all, trying to figure out how to climb and do all of that and learn that and then how to route find. And now with like off trail and like getting to this lake, those things really inspire me. Hasn't really translated to like professional skills, but I, if I'm not careful, I could spend all my time doing that. And it's really hard not to. And that's one of the few things in my life where it's like, in terms of, I guess, work, where I'm putting mental or physical effort forward that I have to hold myself back. And, and I don't really know how to reconcile with that. Cause I don't have a lot of friends like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's figuring out a balance that like, you know, I've, I've worked, worked a lot of boring or tedious or grinding jobs where the whole time I'm thinking like, okay, just <laughs> count the days until I'm out of here and I can go back up to, whatever project I got going on or anything. So you make that trade off. And, um, and I think we talked a little earlier about like, like I'm trying to, you know, monetize the exact activity I'm doing. I've done a little bit through the guidebooks, but mm -hmm. I want to do it more directly and just basically be, be paid to do all this stuff and producing, you know, producing, you know, climbs and stuff yeah. like that. But um, you, you want to be careful not to kill the goose that lays the egg, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you want to, you know, not become taking your passion and turning it into your job has a lot of risk to it, obviously. So, and that's where I, I've even found like looking at all the things adjacent to that, because like I even found myself with the sense of newness and looking at all the things that I like and finding out a way to make that fit in my lifestyle in a very general way. And that's where it's like making art and graphic design and writing and talking to people. Yeah. Those are all things that I can do no matter what I do. And I can wrap that around the interests that I have, whether it's, you know, someone needs a logo for climbing or they need it for martial arts or something like that. Like it helps. Um, there was one thing I was curious about. Pete, do you, could you tell me about that story um, that you mentioned earlier oh, about yeah, college? Oh yeah, we never got back to that. Yeah. <laughs> the what the boat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because I was going to bring that up. <laughs> oh, well, I guess as a teenager before, I read books to um, escape or well, to, to find some direction about the life I wanted to live. And so it just seemed natural that one would um, climb, one would ski perhaps, one would do some outdoor sports, one would maybe visit the Arctic or the Antarctic, maybe go to the South Pole, one would cross an ocean in a small boat, one might travel down the Nile. And it just seemed and this is totally delusional, but as a, a young person, I just thought that that would be a natural life. To, an ordinary life would be you would travel the Nile to its source or you would cross an ocean in a small boat. You would go to the North Pole. It just seemed sort of like, well, is, doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> so um, somebody I knew wanted to row. Well, we were going to sail to Hawaii in a, in a small 
we're going to build a sailboat, um, like a Cape Cod fishing dory with sails <laughs> and sail to Hawaii from, from Washington. <laughs> and we started to build the sailboat. I don't think it had been done, right? It hadn't been done. Yeah. The, <laughs> the Atlantic had been cross rowing. Yeah. And people had sailed, but we were going to sail. So, of course, lots of people have sailed to Hawaii, but it turned out it was going to take too long. And we didn't really know what we were doing as far as to, to make a sailboat out of a. We had plans for these Cape Cod fishing dories that take sail. And it just got too complicated. We were running out of time with spring. So we just converted it to a rowboat. And that hadn't been done. So it hadn't been rowed. <laughs> so we ended up. Um, was, the boat, was the boat pre built or did you. No, we built it. We yeah. built it. Wow. In, 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 in my friend's garage. Jeez. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah, so in his backyard, basically. Yeah, yeah. So we had to build the boat first because we, you know, you know, we had to build it because we wanted to close. It was open, but we had the front, you know, the aft and, and, and the bow covered a little bit for storage, but it was basically an open rowboat. And so we ended up rowing it or attempting to row it to Hawaii. And we got about halfway there, and there was a big storm. We were off northern California coast, and the storm was – we left in early June, and somewhere in mid-July, there was a big storm, and it sank like three big fishing boats oh my off Oregon coast. And we capsized. We, we were turned – we were in this huge storm. It was scared to death. We capsized, lost a bunch of gear. You're what, 22? I'm 21. Oh, my God. 21. And I just figured, well, you know, like I'll go climbing this summer. This summer I'll go to the Arctic. <laughs> this summer I'll uh, row across to Hawaii. It just seemed like, isn't that what everybody did? I, I didn't know that at the time. I just assumed that everybody did that. And so we capsized, and then I had enough. So I said, well, why don't we go back, you know? So we rode back. And we ended up right in San Francisco. So we went from La Push here, halfway to Hawaii, turned around and came back and ended up in San Francisco in mid-August. So we were gone for two months at sea. And then I, I decided that, um, you know, there's probably easier ways to enjoy the summer than, than doing that. But we did row, you know, at least maybe 2,000 miles or something. You wow. He basically probably rode the whole distance. Well, I think he did. I think we got about halfway there and then yeah. turned around and came back. Oh. I mean, we had probably maybe a, a halfway or something, who knows, at least. Wow. So that was the experience of that particular summer. And then I thought, you know, climbing doesn't look so boring after all. Yeah. So maybe I'll just start. Or so climbing. dangerous, actually. Yeah. 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 Take climbing. That. Oh, that's wild. And, and then in the storm, you know, we were literally surfing down 40-foot waves in our boat. I mean, oh, these, these waves are so huge. Our sea anchor broke, oh. and that turned us to go broadsize and capsize. And then we jury-rigged another sea anchor. And then a few days later, we, we started rowing again, and, and the, the waves are so huge after the storm. How did you flip it when it capsized, or did you stay uh, we, capsized? We, we got out from underneath it. And grabbed one side, both of us, and, and pulled. And when another wave came, we were broadside. So we pulled on it. And then when the big wave came along, it lifted us over and turned us back right side again. Yeah. Oh my God. And then we did you up another. Do you lose a bunch of stuff? We lost a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Stuff, including my glasses. Wow. So, and I'm pretty blind without my glasses. So that was oh, a big thing. Oh. You're blindly rowing back. To the, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, that's a context for the the whole Dolmite Tower story. (laughs) So in terms of like suffering, 
you know, experiences Pete's been like, way beyond. I've voluntarily taken on a small amounts of suffering along the way. But yeah. Yeah. Those are huge. Some part of my ethics. My, yeah, ethos is suffering deprivation seemed to be part of my understanding of how to live a full life. <laughs> it, it would have to somehow deprivation and suffering seems to sort of make sense in some illogical manner. When you are in the, in the depths of like that suffering, are you, is it easy for you to keep a level head? Oh yeah. Yeah. I just, <laughs> just felt, I never panic. It just feels like this is just like a, an existential pinch to remind me, you know, I'm alive and not just an automated, you know, machine. So it just seems to sort of fit in with my whole, you know, sort of self-awareness of, what it is to be alive. Wow. It's totally nuts, of course, but that's... So, yeah, so going back to that, that uh, common interest in history, in particular, war history. So, like, you know, uh, especially now with the internet, there's, like, all this material about, you know, footage of, you know, different wars and things that went on and history and whatnot. And repeatedly, it's just, like, the one thing Pete and I, you know, neither neither of us served in the military or involved in the war directly. But I think the, the thing is, you know, to, to give us something to put perspective of our, our experiences climbing and whatnot. I think war is this bizarre uh, backdrop in history that a lot of, you know, people that even we even know were subjected to. And... And it, to us, we just can't wrap our head around it. It's surreal to think that people will be trying to kill you on a, you know, round the clock basis. Mm -hmm. And then you got, you know, people, people going through extraordinary means to wipe each other out or whatever. And just the whole, I think that there's a, there's a layer to that where you're looking at from that 10,000 foot level and seeing what's going on. And you're seeing something about fundamental about human behavior and you kind of ask yourself questions like, well, what would I do in this situation? You know, you know, would I just freak out or would I, you know, figure it out or what would happen? And so it's just a very, to me, it's like a, it, it's a way to kind of ground yourself a little bit mm -hmm. in terms of like, yeah, I've been through some close calls or scrapes or whatever, but at least I've never been through in a, in a war yeah, <laughs> or never exactly. in relying on luck for most of your, you know, time. You're able to actually, like a lot of the time you're able to mitigate these things like in our, and you very rarely brush up against things that you can't really mitigate to ensure your safety or. Yeah. And, and a lot of the process of like planning a project and then executing it and stuff, it's very similar to like a military campaign or something. The, where you're like trying to make progress and you have to back that up with all kinds of, so like that whole, so then when I read, we read about like one that we've read both Pete's an expert on uh, Ulysses Grant particularly, and I've read some books on him and just the way he would go about solving problems that would come up or the way he would approach, you know, motivating his men or, you know, logistics or whatever it was being creative about, you know, accomplishing a goal. And, and that whole process is so similar to what we experienced when we're out trying to do climbing or adventure stuff. And, and that's what I wondered, like how people seem to have a, uh, I forget the, the guy who, who's the author of a book, the book called tribe. 
um, where he talks about people who would go off into the military and they come back and feel like a life like kind of like unfulfilled and like how it's not is I wouldn't say exciting, but how life doesn't feel as satisfying as it did when they were at war. And like you think about like the biggest thing that we do today is is not driving. I wouldn't say is very safe, but it feels safe. Yeah. Um, is we mitigated the, we've removed so much of that risk and we removed, um, from our daily lives. And it's interesting that a lot of these things, even when I go out and climb mirror, like we have to do everything to mitigate risk. So we don't die. Like, even if you have to just tie your knots and, you know, and double check everything, like if you don't do that, then, you know, we're not, we might not make it out of this alive. And there's like a very interesting dynamic to that relationship that I don't know if you get those kinds of experiences without having like that overhead risk. And a lot of those things oddly line up to being at war. Yeah. And I think, right? I, I think like, the thing that Pete and I appreciate is that we found something that gives us kind of that same kick or whatever the people would get from going off. Because if people, mm-hmm. whether it's people go to war is they like it. Yeah. <laughs> they like That's getting out there and shooting at things mm-hmm. and making the other guy, you know, whatever. And, uh, but in that dopamine and all the chemicals that kick in, and like you said, they, they go through this withdrawal mm-hmm. when they get back and with the climbing and adventure stuff, you can kind of control that, yeah. that feed, that f- whatever it is and that risk. And then, and make it sustainable. So like here, you know, 50 years, 40, 50 years down the line, both P and I can still do stuff that's cool and not completely safe, but, you know, compared to, you know, some crazy war situations. And I think the biggest parallel you see is, and I actually see this as a trend, which is um, there seems to be quite a bit of BMX people and skateboarders who've gotten into rock climbing pretty extensively. And, and in in their middle age and it's interesting because if you look at like they say like for children like uh, i really like um there's a there's a book that i like to read that i like to read by like the 12 rules for life by jordan peterson he talks about just children and and um engaging with risk and like skateboarding for instance and like how and people talk about that with climbing how you see around like college age people trying to be in risk taking right and you can see these kinds of trends and development within like people right um and i always thought that that was interesting that with at least with the bmx and stuff because i was grew up in a household that did bmx um you can't really control and mitigate for a lot of those risks like when you're doing aerials and stuff like that you're falling you can hurt yourself over time it's harder to heal from those things but in climbing you know there's like among other sports too um there's there's ways to get these experiences while mitigating for the risk in a way that you can come home safe you know actually when i think about it, another yet another <laughs> interesting thing with as different as our careers have been climbing I've never broken a bone or had a serious injury climbing. I don't think Pete has either, really. You haven't, really? Aside from that. Not the... climbing. Yeah. Yeah. I broke a bone skiing. <laughs> very of course. Young. Yeah. And, and another bone, um, you know, I was goofing off somewhere as a kid. But yeah, I've. Wow. And I think what Brian and I somehow figured out is negotiating terrain that's challenging is very 
very enticing and intoxicating even. And once you figure out a way to, you either outgrow or figure out a way to remove the risk factor to, to, to a reasonable extent, mm -hmm. then it, it just becomes um, a very fulfilling activity to do, enjoyable outdoors. But you've also, um, what was I going to say? And that's where I think the element of some sort of challenge or physical difficulty or or even deprivation or suffering, and I use those terms exaggeratingly, you know, you don't really suffer. But the, but the idea is, to, for I think Brian and I intuitively is, we're afraid of going soft, mm -hmm. you know, or becoming soft. Yeah. So I think we, we and the best way to keep from going soft, but keep it um, engaged is, is to find some way to negotiate terrain that's challenging or even difficult, you might say. And, and I think, I feel like if, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be missing out on something important about living life. You know, like something about just finding terrain that's challenging, but you have some idea you're going to come out on the other side in one piece, but it's still going to be challenging enough that you're going to, there's going to be some element of deprivation or physical hardship or whatever, you know, to that in some and, extent. And you're self-reliant too. And, and the self-reliance is a big part of it. You're, but, you're relying on yourself in, in terrain that's normally maybe not And I think that self-reliance thing is a big key because that's the thing that yeah, I've enjoyed so exactly. much, especially as a father yeah. too, and being able to take my son in non-consequential terrain, but like, well, how are we going to get back, dad? And it's like, yeah, yeah. the directions, <laughs> like I, I figured all this out on the map, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a thing though where like, you know, you... you you have all these feelings and I, and I love how we have all these ways to, um, to, to live your life in that way without having to do the, like be at war. Right. Oh, yeah. But I think about that with conquerors a lot. Whereas like, if you did not have the opportunity to conquer, would people, would that archetype of the conqueror still have the desire to conquer? And if you didn't have rec forms of recreation that, fulfilled the conquering feelings would that person then be a threat to your society but if you were to have like boxing and mma which is a very conquering kind of you know very dominating kind of form of recreation right but pretty safe relatively speaking because everyone agrees to the same rule set and once they're done they agree to be done and there's people to stop them if they weren't but most of them really nice people and I think that's so interesting about our society is that there seems to be all these forms of recreation and it's a way to act out these archetypes without having to realize our, the primal reality that it might have once been, which is terrifying, to be honest with you, with some of these. Because I've done martial arts and I've, I've indulged in, I guess, aggressive tendencies it wouldn't be violent tendencies i'm not an angry person i'm more afraid of my own ability to hurt someone if i were ever angry but going into a trying to win a competition i have to go into it with the intent to do everything that i can to uh, make that person give up and so if i'm in a like threaten to break their arm we're not going to break their arm but i'm going to try really hard and i'm not going to let you win and that takes a level of commitment mentally that's pretty close to some um, to realizing your ultimate like, you know, violence in that way. And it's um, martial arts had me, you know, 
bring me up to all of that. And I, sometimes I get afraid that if we didn't have those outlets in our society, that those archetypes would completely decimate our society. Well, you it's end up that. people shooting each other, you know, the, whatever the dysfunctional stuff that goes on. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I've definitely had people tell me like, yeah, if we were climbing, I'd be in jail right now or whatever. So. And that's where like, I feel like that's a very legitimate thing in the sense that like I was telling you guys as I first came in here, that through climbing and like hiking and backpacking, my son gets exposed to experiences where he can work out how he wants to live his life, how he should treat people. And I can hold the boundary to make sure nothing bad happens to other people and whatever. But I have told him all of these lessons and, you know, and I still am. Oftentimes he doesn't understand them or he doesn't hear them or nagging him incessantly to like, you know, don't yell at that person. It only works so much. But having these experiences, at least as a father, it's my hope that like he'll come out on the other end of it. Yeah, I mean, just, just something. You just gotta do. It's just like anything else. You just do your best and see what what happens out of the. Mm -hmm. You know, try to keep the worst the worst stuff covered and then live with whatever happens. And, you know. and so much, but it's so much easier to like to to go out on an experience with that person and go and have it and then do all of that as opposed to never having those experiences and only hearing about the symptoms or like the behaviors like he's oh you know he hit johnny in school or whatever and it's like you never really been with your child or that person in a place where they're like emotionally challenged before so how can you ever build that relationship or that conversation to know that person like you know. I think I think that the the kind of the takeaway that I have from both from both what Pete and I have done is you know just don't don't give up too easily like finding that niche you know that works for you and and just keep evolving yourself for it but but I, I think that it's it probably doesn't apply to every you know, I might be too optimistic to say everybody has a niche that's going to be fulfilling in life. You know, Pete and I feel, feel like we're, we're lucky to have found those situations, but um, I, I guess the main thing is just don't settle, just, just don't settle for a life where you're going to be frustrated and, and kind of, you know, kind of hemmed in in a, in, in a lot of ways, you know, that you're not, you're not able to, you know, feel some sense of freedom and flow and, you know, a healthy experience that keeps, that makes all the crappier stuff in life tolerable too. And I think, yeah. So I think that's just, and like I said, you know, Pete and I did you know, with the climbing, neither of us, you know, we're really committed to it until well into our thirties. And I, what, how old are you now? You're like 26. Yeah. So you're, you're relatively young. So at, at, at that age, we were both just kind of like trying this, trying that, you know, kind of like you're doing. And I think that's very healthy in that, you know, that age. So I think there's, you know, kind of appropriate stages in your life to do certain things mm -hmm. and, and, and just, you know, get to a point where you're like, you can, you know, start standing back a little bit saying okay yeah this seems appropriate to my skills or yeah. what i'm able to do and matching what you the things that you looking being able to see what you like and then what you have strengths at and mixing yeah. the two of those right yeah it's like with the, like the sports like i was not 
I tried different sports when I was a younger kid and I just, all these team sports, I just was not working out. And then, so I just kind of lost interest in it. And then running kind of fell into my lap. I just kind of pushed it into a little bit and failed at it completely <laughs> uh, initially. But then when I did get success, I felt like I had earned every bit of it. It wasn't just something that was given to me. And I learned, I learned lessons from that experience that carried in the rest of my life. So when I got into climbing, I already had that in my background and I took the, the, the parts that I kn knew would work for me from the running. Mm -hmm. uh, but like a huge priority for me in climbing was just not get injured because I got injured in running and it sucked. I hated it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I succeeded with climbing to never, never get injured. Um, and I think, so you just kind of carry, you know, try these things out and then carry these lessons away from it. Don't just let it go away. You know, you, even though I don't do a lot of these sports or stuff anymore, I'd learn from each one. And, and then by the time I finally got into climbing, I had a good rounded perspective of how valuable it was and then what my strengths were. Mm -hmm. So I was able to go to a much higher level in my climbing than I could with my running. Yeah. And I think that that, and part of that was just recognizing that, oh yeah, here's a sport where I do have some talent and this is what it feels like versus, you know, uh, kind of beating my head against the wall mm -hmm. as a runner. So, yeah. so, I, so I think that's things you try these different things and you make the trade-offs. It's like, well, here's something that I have a lot of passion for, but I'll probably never make a living doing it. Mm -hmm. And here's something else that, you know, I have some talent for, maybe I can make a living doing it. You know, people have to make those kind of decisions all the time. Yeah, that's what you're talking about, Pete, about the the thinking about the difference between the breadth and the depth, right? Um, taking that deep dive or going really wide. Uh, was that really hard for you to make that just for make to make that decision to to dive deep at that time in your life? Because yeah, it was not so much making a difficult decision. It was finding the right way to negotiate my life. And so you try different things and then you don't know if you're going to be finding something to go deep into. But when you do, you know it mm. and you know that, OK, this is what I want to do. I want to perform at this level. And the only way I'll ever get there is if I just put aside everything else and just focus on this one thing. And then you get into this mindset that Brian mentioned of, as being almost obsessive. Um, and there's pleasure. No, it's, it's obsessive. But but the only way you'll you, you you finally figure out this is what I want to do, and the only way I'll ever get there is to put aside everything else and just do this one thing mm -hmm. and and set aside everything that distracts me from it. And that's yeah. a cool feeling when you when that does work. It's it's very empowering because finally I can go up for a month and work on something by myself, mm -hmm. some project climbing. And 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 be totally in this headspace, this zone where I, you know, I'm enjoying every minute of it. But but when you're younger, it's hard to know what, where you'll end up doing that in. You know, you might yeah. not have an affinity for for many things that require that, but you don't have the affinity for it. So you have to try it. But you don't know that until you try. It. You try it. Oh no, I can't. You know, I can't really surf at that level. I can't just do it. And then you think, well, I'll just be half-ass at everything in life and I'll, I'll just be going wide. And then all of a sudden 
you find out, oh, I can do this. And that's very mind-blowing or empowering. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I can do this. And then I can do something that seems, you know, my own small relative framework consequential mm -hmm. for, for to, in, to have a life that has is consequential in some relative small framework. Yeah. And that's, to me, important to, to experience that before I, you know, get shuffled off this mortal coil or, or to an assisted living home, wherever they, you know. So that's, I'm grateful that I found something like that, that I can get my head into. And then, you know, often it becomes more interesting when you become a little obsessive about something. It just somehow makes it more interesting. <laughs> so, go, so the question that I asked Pete about his first, first ascent kind of thing, and it sounds like, it kind of was, it was cool. It, it was a start, but it didn't, yeah, it didn't the whole picture yeah. didn't come together yeah. until probably I met you. And then it all came yeah, together. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Cause I'd, I'd go off and do a first ascent. Okay. And then you're back a few days later. Okay. What now? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then with Brian, okay, this is, we're going to do a first ascent. It might take three years. <laughs> and that's what it did on Dolomite Territory. Yeah, yeah. Three summers yeah. to pull it off. And then, okay, well, this is a whole nother level. And then <laughs> it takes a while for my mind to wrap around it. But once it yeah. did, I kind of understood, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to go, you know, go back east and visit my relatives this summer. You know, no more of that stuff. I'm just going to be in the mountains focusing on what Brian, you know, set our agenda for that summer, you know, whatever. Wow. And, and it's very cool when you find something because – a lot of people just drift from one thing to another in life, and and but and, but the thing is, for me, the the mo I did have a specific climb, a specific time, uh, where everything just like the whole world just shifted on its on its axis, so to speak, uh, for me, uh, and that was the the Presic Peak. Oh, climb. Uh, yeah. So and, tell us about that. Then. Yeah. So that and so that was um, with with Andy. So. I, after I climbed with um, John Stoddard, who taught me kind of like all the equipment and not basically how you climb without dying. <laughs> and then I, uh, then he took off and then I climbed with uh, Andy Cairns from the UW Rock. And he uh, was very uh, older guy, very wonderful guy to hang out with. And he had just amazing skill as a climber, but he was very kind of like um, low key and very, you know, kind of a he's he's an academic researcher type of guy and uh anyway so we we would do i i don't think we'd we would go just to index or places and we'd climb some pretty hard stuff or you know push ourselves when we met in the early 80s uh, i was leading 10a and he was leading 10b <laughs> and when we parted when he moved away at the end of the 80s i was leading 11d and he was leading 12a or something so it was like we, we pushed each other but but Andy always had another gear like you know it was an interesting thing and um but anyway so we we went off to do uh, we were just doing the classics we'd done a couple of the other you know cascade classics together uh one of which we met pete finally uh for the first time in 1983 on this it was 82 or 81 81 yeah. on the summit of um triumph mount triumph and pete was coming up from the other side having done a first ascent of this big huge face oh and it was a super hot day it was like 100 degrees even at seven thousand feet oh my god and then pete uh then andy and i came up the northeast standard ridge and then we shared some water with them because they looked pretty beat but i didn't know who it was he just had this big beard and just <laughs> this other guy 
And, we, and it was until we backtracked years later that we figured out that's where we met. Oh. But um, anyway, so I was with Andy, and Andy and I went to do uh, the Burdener Stanley route on um, on Prusik, which is a pretty standard South Face route. And we get there, and we're looking, at, we're look, using the Becky guide, which is very vague, of course. And there's all these different <laughs> options. And pretty soon we're like, well, let's just do this hand crack. This is a nice, beautiful hand crack. So you just five nine hand crack, and like, wow, that's a really good pitch. And then we looked over and saw some slings. And like, oh, we were supposed to go up this chimney. Well, we, we did the better way. And we just kind of kept, and I think we did a couple of pitches from Burger and Stanley, but then we get up to the main ledge and you have to step left to go up this chimney, mm-hmm. which uh, I've never, still haven't done to this day, but it, apparently it's like awkward and poorly protected and sandbag. And I looked at that chimney, I'm like, oh man, that this does not look fun. <laughs> and then, but I had seen this face uh, to the right it's this huge pillar that went up and that crack went up on a flake and then went the flake kind of petered out. And, but I kind of went over on the ledge. I could see around the corner. There was another corner system. This is the classic Bordeaux traverse. It is all these multi-pitch routes that I put. I've always had these traverses in them. <laughs> anyway, so I grabbed the rack. I said, Let, let's go for it, Andy. And there's like beautiful white granite with chicken heads on oh, it. Oh, wow. And, but it was like intimidating. I still have a picture of it down in the basement. I can show you. But so I lie back up the flay, get up there, stuck a cam behind it and went off into the like moon, you know, spacewalk onto these knobs and went around the corner and thank God. And I reached around the corner and there was no pro. It was like a a seam. But then I was like, shit, you know, and I'm way run out. And but then I look up and it opened up into a pod where I could get a cam. And I got up a little bit and then set up a blay. And then we did another pitch uh, to join the final pitch of Bergner Stanley. Anyway, so, but just that whole process of finding that, those amazing pitches and the the adrenaline, and, and I really need to go back and just do those. That's one is I want to go back and do trad is just to do that route and see how cool it is. Because I remember it just being literally the best climbing I'd ever done in my whole life. Wow, really? And then the whole time on the way back, we're like, why has no one done this before? Because we were sure no one had done it mm-hmm. in the past. And it, turned out that was the case but you know if this is sitting there the whole time what else is waiting out there yeah. and that's when i got the bug to start looking at like and i get the binoculars out and go to washington pass and look at you know look at cracks wow. and, and just start that whole engagement mentally and and, and so literally it turned on a dime until then i was just a recreational climber mm-hmm. and from that point on i was just obsessed to find you know more cracks and cool wow cool climbing. and it did it to the point to where like that was for like the description of obsession it was hard to keep your mind off of it yeah i mean it was wow. it was just something that that i discovered you know, i'd had that previously in my life with doing art or doing you know the models i was talking about or the running you know things like that i was very comfortable with that level of engagement mm-hmm. uh, but with climbing i just didn't have that until that point and that's when I knew, because before that, I was just another climber, and that's all I saw myself as. And I'd be like, well, I might get pretty good someday, you know, climb 5.11 or something. But um, but once that happened, I, I, I felt like all of a sudden, this is a unique, I need to listen to this, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, it's like one of those things, it was an opportunity, it was an experience, it was all these things wrapped into one. And I'm not sure if, if, if you know, so that's why I asked Pete if he'd had some yeah. 
Uh, no, like that. Yeah. It sounds like you had an epiphany. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. had, I had a gradual sort of awakening, yeah. mm-hmm. but it's very, you know, like yeah. 10 years it took me to get to that yeah. thing you had in one day. Yeah, yeah. But but that one day was a result of, you know, the gradual. Sure. All that, and, yeah. Oh, and then the, 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 the kind of the, the, the kind of backstory on that climb too was a couple of years earlier, I'd gone to Leavenworth uh, with, uh, Stoddard and um, we top roped. I top roped my first five ten called Brass Balls, a really cool route. And um, and uh, it took a couple of hangs, but I got up it on top rope. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, that's the coolest climb I've ever been on. And we we're driving back, and and I remember saying like I was probably flipping through the Becky Guide or something. And I go, I think my goal as a climber is would be to to lead a five ten like that in the in the Alpine. Because I always looked at all the crags and stuff as just practice for the, yeah. the Alpine. And he laughed. He looked at he goes, You don't know what you're talking about. You you were hanging on that rope on a 510 and you don't know what you want to go into the mountains and think you can lead something like he completely <coughs> squashed that down. And and that stuck with me because that's oh. that's the number one way to get me motivated to do something is tell me i can't you're an underdog that i can't yeah that i just can't you know like and it wasn't like i gotta do this to get even with him but i just i i think that was part of that mm-hmm. the the part of the catalyst for what made that because that was my really my i think about it. well i done five okay i done five ten in in yosemite before that like 10 a 10 b uh and this route ended up being like mid 510 is the hardest is hard it was right at my limit at the time but to do you know the first ascent on site from the ground up blah 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 at my limit it was everything in one in one thing is and even since then i've rarely had that mm-hmm. happen so so i feel like that was almost like a you That's know a magical like the, moment the finger of god yeah you know? like, like the, there are moments like that and you're if you're lucky in your your mm-hmm. lifetime you, you get those moments where like boom mm-hmm. <laughs> this is yeah this is important this is something to, and lucky enough to be like open to them too you know yeah yeah and have a partner that was supportive because you know a lot of partners would have said no that looks crazy man there's mm-hmm. no pro up there you know or whatever but Andy just had this confidence that you know we'd, we'd figure it out together as a team and that's what makes a you know good partner is critical to doing that kind of thing so yeah so anyway so there's a lot of ways to get to these different points but and and i and it's funny because i don't consider myself someone that's relies on luck relies on epiphany relies on any of that kind of stuff that happens it happens is great it seems like the more you just like don't rely on that stuff it does happen Mm mm-hmm because you're relaxed you know? yeah and you know it's that whole axiom that i didn't really still don't really understand too much but like you know the harder you try the less you have it right yeah yeah you just you, you learn to relax enough and yet be aware and just let that let the opportunity you know isn't there like a buddhism like a thing or like because that's the thing that I, I would read in like the Tao Te Ching, right yeah. and like how in and all of that and that stuff seems so esoteric and abstract yeah but as i get into these kinds of activities and learn more about myself it all kind of starts making a lot more sense to me yeah. and i think artists get experience this kind of thing or you know i think it's a yeah it's it's difficult difficult to describe i could never 
tell someone, well, here's the formula to have your epiphany. But that, yeah. that goes back to that thing with my, you know, with my son or like, um, thinking about my own self or personal development, right? Like I can't really detail you any of that, but you can go and put yourself in these experiences and see what happens. Yeah. Right? Yeah. At some point that's all you can do. And, but what's reliable though, is you put yourself in these experiences and something happens is it's, you know, you sit on the couch and it's rare that something reliably, you know, comes out the other end, but you go off on a climb or a run or do a high route or even paint. Right. And it's likely that you're going to have some new kind of information or whatever it is. And then the other backstory there is I, my running career had pretty quickly gone to marathon running mm -hmm. because I was just so slow at the shorter stuff, <laughs> which is funny because I'm my best event actually in as a older runner has been more like sprinting, but, Anyway, so but I, in the marathon, what I learned was in, in a, I think the last interview, I think we did talk about this mm -hmm. uh, in three years in high school, I went from uh, running one mile all out in six and a half minutes to running 26 of those together, like strung out in a marathon without stopping in three years. So wow. that and then that was kind of a mind. That was an epiphany for yeah. sure moment so like that i didn't i didn't deceive myself that oh hey i'm gonna go to the olympics now you know because mm -hmm. i wasn't anywhere close to that but what it did is it showed me that if you do if i stick with something mm -hmm. and methodically work at it and deal with the setbacks that you know there's a lot as possible like so then that gave me confidence later on when i had challenges that i just need to be patient, but be persistent and just don't give, don't give up on those important goals. So you did have real world or uh, real life problems that you were able to use those lessons that you learned. Yeah. Yeah. I, I developed a lot of health problems in my twenties yeah. and in my thirties and actually for a good part of my life. And, but I always felt like I, I'll get, I'll, let me figure these out because same thing with the running. I kind of figured it out, although I ended up an injury and I had to back off. Yeah. But fortunately, I got back into that. So it does seem to pan out, but it's it's crazy how sometimes you just really have to be willing to back off, which is contradictory to the obsession part. But but just knowing your personality. So like then once you, things do click, you can have the confidence, say, OK, I'm just going to stick with it because you know, I, I'm only doing this now, but I can see this in a couple of years, I can grow it to this. Yeah, exactly. And I, th that's key to all that. All Anything successful is to just rely, you know, draw on those experiences of success, however small they are, mm -hmm. and then extrapolate that. And then, um, yeah, and then you'll, you'll be able to kind of amaze yourself yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you, over time. And here I am. In my 60s, I'm still doing stuff that I couldn't even do in my 20s. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty amazing. That's so. what the, the ultra marathons and one of the reasons why getting into those was like, well, I knew that on some level, like anyone, or most people can run like 50 miles or 100 miles with the pro, like gradual training, right? Like it's not because mm -hmm. there were people that I watched and they do like the Bigfoot 200 miler, right? Just like 200 and 15-ish miles through, you know, down from like Mount St. Helens to Mount Adams in the back country. And there's like people who are heavy set, who are older than me, um, who didn't have very much muscle mass, who had a lot of muscle mass, all the combination of all things. There was like 
no way to explain how impossible that that was. And so it was like, well, if I just try my hand at this, then at least I'll figure something. Woo! Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. As a young person who is pretty inexperienced at rock climbing, especially compared to Brian and Pete, and just adventure in general, it is an amazing opportunity to be able to sit with these guys and hear their experiences and how that's evolved over the years and shaped their perspective and their lifestyle and like their their niche but for who they are as people and in that broader sense i just i love the cascades i love you know adventure and climbing and high routes or really pursuing whatever passion that you have and finding different constraints that push you to grow and to rejoice in this short life that we all get to live you know and just trying to make it a little bit better for you and the people around you because you want to have fun and you want to play not for any pretentious or snobbery you know for the party (laughs) well Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Uh, You can check out uh, more episodes or some photos about some of the mountains we talked about on becominghumanpodcast.com. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate, review on um, any of your podcast apps and share it with a friend. I'm going to play you out with a song by Christoph Crane and Idea and Abilities called best friends enjoy (laughs) I think this one looks like a fight between a plate of fruit and my dad's exercise bike I bet if these ants dancing next to my head could fly that high they would use that cloud as a bit my dad said that bugs bite and fly with the wind and if the sun isn't hung right then run like a fish we could win if we both try to untie our fins and climb that pine tree with the swing on it behind the fence. Uh, all right, one, two, three, let's race. I bet that I can beat you there. Last time you ran faster than a grown-up when we were here, remember? I scraped my knee, then got stung by a bumblebee, and the old man that lived behind the fence came out and yelled at me. Of course I remember. Oh, how could I forget? He wrote my mom a letter, and my dad, he threw a fit. But this time we'll be better, I promise As long as we're honest, he'll give us permission Yeah, he can't say no to a kid I will never turn my back to a lollipop to lick It's all a puppy dog and kisses and hugs So fill my cup with the cotton candy ice cream And weekend sleepovers I don't wanna grow up if it means getting old. I will never turn my back to a lollipop to lick It's all a puppy dog to kisses and hugs So fill my cup with the cotton candy ice cream And weekend sleepovers, you know, I don't really want to grow up if it means getting old. See, what I really don't get is why the big kids never get grounded after playing Ding Dong Ditch. And the slingshots look like mighty fun. She wish that I had one. That way I could stand up to bullies instead of trying to run. Yeah, and they always get the baseball cards from the policeman. Being tall don't make you smart. At least we can always find something to do. Like looking at the clouds with my best friend. That's you. I'm not sure what to say. I'm just happy that we're small enough to look up at the sky and feel okay. And I'd be lying if I tried to say that I don't feel the same way that you do. So let's be on our way. It's time to play. Oh, to the 
jungle gym or to the swimming pool School's out forever and I hope I'm never too cool To keep on making my life better Whether 5, 25 or 80 As long as I'm alive, I'm in love and forever changed I will never turn my back to a lollipop to lick Kisses and a hug with love Fill my cup with a bunch of good things I always feel alright Cause I'm a little kid We're all little kids on the inside Never turn my back on a cupcake love Mixed with kisses and a kitten with love Now fill my cup up with cotton candy Ice cream and weekend sleepovers I will never grow up Cause I'll never get older